Bitcoin isn't like a new theory about what kinds of money are possible. It's more like a bulldozer that says, you're all wrong. You need more tools to think properly about money. Here's a totally new kind of money that is kind of like fiat, kind of like gold, and kind of like neither. Hello there. How are you already having a good week? Having a good time over here in Bedford. It's my birthday next week. I'm looking forward to that. Actually, I'm not doing anything. I'm too old to celebrate birthdays. All I want is a win in the cup this weekend for the mighty rail Bedford. I am actually over here in Switzerland, enjoying the Plan B conference. It's pretty, you know what, these conferences over in Europe, they're getting better. We're seeing some good stuff being done in Europe for Bitcoiners. Maybe I won't have to always travel to America. Anyway, listen, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. Today, I've got another philosopher on the show. I've got Andrew Bailey. Now, this is a show that Danny wanted to make so much. Danny kept pinging me and said, look, you need to get Andrew Bailey on the show. You're going to love this guy. Do you know what? He was right. I did. I actually love getting the philosophers on the show. I love having these kind of like deeper conversations about Bitcoin and money and what's happening with the world. Um, and so to get Andrew Bailey on was was incredible. But but the weird thing is, I think Andrew played me because it ended up not being so much of an interview. I kind of feel like it was a therapy session. Yeah, Andrew did this really clever thing whereby he flipped the script and started asking me questions and made me kind of think about the philosophy and money itself which was super cool so i've got no idea how this worked out for you i never li- listened back to the shows because firstly i hate my voice and I'm, every time i hear it i'm like oh my god i sound like a moron how do i have any friends and why does anyone listen to my show uh, and secondly i'm just too super judgmental but i've got no idea how this worked out some of you might love this some of you might hate it but definitely feedback to me i, I want to know i want to know what you think about it you can drop me an email it's hello at whatbitcoindid.com i will get andrew back on the show i do actually want to do a proper philosophy of money with him not a therapy session for me so please do get in touch. Please let me know what you think. All right, apart from that, have a great weekend. I love you all, and I'll see you all next week. Andrew, how are you? Doing all right, Peter. How are you? Good. Uh, welcome to What Bitcoin Did. Thank you. It's well, good to see you again. Yes. Well, yes. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know we'd met before. We had a Zoom chat in 2020. I asked you for some time to help me and my colleagues work on some branding for this new Bitcoin research collective we were going to be launching. So th- that was two years ago, and you gave us the thumbs up on the title we, we landed on, which is Resistance Money. I have, I have no memory of this at all. It's terrible, isn't it? Well, it happened. The well, website is up. We, we've published 20 articles since then, and we got a book. Amazing. Well, I tell what, I, I say, uh, email me, anyone email me. I'll do my best to reply. We cut it out for a while, but uh, it's back, and... Uh, I don't say I don't tend to t- say no to a lot, um, so that's kind of funny because uh, when we first thank you. <laughs> well, when we first spoke, was it Troy we first spoke to? Yeah, and Troy re- referenced ref- uh, referenced the uh, resistance money. I was like, that's a fucking cool name. <laughs> well, that's what you thought back then. We we stuck with it. <laughs> no memory of it at all. Like, Jesus, I wonder why that is. Well, listen, we've got we're doing stretcher shows. We just did Texas. Uh, we're now here in Miami, and Danny, don't want to put any pressure on you, but Danny said, the show you're going to most enjoy is the Andrew Bailey show. That's the one you're going to look forward to. But then the last episode, you said Danny says that everybody's great, so... <laughs> no, but, but Danny says everyone's... Well, Danny has to say that, because Danny is the... Uh, Thank you, Danny. <laughs> Danny is the gatekeeper of what Bitcoin did. If Danny says no, people don't come on, he's the booker. So he he would think they're all great, but he said Andrew Bailey's the show you're gonna most enjoy. I think it's because we've had some philosophers on recently, and we've gone to a bit of philosophy, and he knows I enjoy those. And he said, 
said, Pete, I'm telling you now, Andrew Bailey is the one you're going to enjoy. So the pressure's on them. And we're going to talk about the philosophy of money. So I think a good starting point as uh, one of the resistant money collective, uh, tell us, Tell people a little bit about you if they don't know you. What is it you do work-wise? What do you spend your day on? Could I start with a, a pre-Bitcoin story? Then, then easy Hell into yeah. that. You start with anything you want, my friend. I want to talk about Roger Veer. Ooh, okay. In 1999, I was 15 years old, and I was at this debate camp, and we were arguing about taxation. And there's this guy in the audience named Roger who came up to me and told me, Andrew, Andrew, you're wrong about everything. This is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. You need to read some real books. And then he sent me in the mail a copy of Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. Wow. And we met one other time. So I was 15, he must have been about 19, 20 uh, at the time. I still have copies, those, those very copies he gave me. And I later had them signed by Harry Brown, who was the libertarian presidential candidate in the year 2000. So I met Roger and he was actually a, an influence in a way. To, to move in that libertarian zone, even in my youth. So I think that was one thing that prepared me for Bitcoin, even though I'm not a libertarian anymore. It may be receptive in some ways. And then years later, maybe in 2019, I, I emailed Roger. He's like, there's this guy named Roger who gave me this book. Was that you? He's like, absolutely, that's me. I used uh, to give away books all the time. Now I give away Bitcoin cash. And, and then he sent me some BCH. Oh, uh, do you know what? I, I, I quickly traded it for real Bitcoin. Good man. That... <laughs> Roger Veer is one of the saddest parts of Bitcoin. A uh, little bit like we discussed uh, Peter Schiff this morning with, uh, we did an interview with... Um, Perry Ann. Sorry, Perry Ann Boring. Well, <laughs> See, that's why I have to have a little nap. I've got to wake up now. Um, we, we did an interview Perry Ann Boring. We were discussing Peter Schiff. And it's, if you separate Peter Schiff from Bitcoin, he's a super interesting guy. He makes some mm. amazing points. Uh, he's written some really interesting things. If you talk to him about the economy or the Fed... Uh, taxation. He's he's brilliant. He's halfway there. He's he maybe, is, maybe ninety percent there. Yeah, he's ninety ninety five percent. Something doesn't compute though. Well, he's made the decision to go against Bitcoin, and he refuses to do the work to consider it. Uh, even today, I just uh, after the interview, I went and checked his Twitter, and his last tweet was uh, um, the oh, who's the guy? Rich dad, poor dad guy. He anyway, the, Robert something Kobayashi or something. Yeah, I'm trying to confuse it not with um, Kobayashi from Usual Suspects. Um, and he puts out a tweet saying something about the economy and you need to buy gold, silver, and Bitcoin. And tweets reply, uh, uh, shifts replies, you need to be, yeah, I, can, I agree with you on everything apart from Bitcoin. So he's made a decision in every mm. single, single interaction to reject Bitcoin. But I can't imagine he's ever done the work. I can't imagine he's ever and done it in a neutral scenario where he reconsiders gold as well. So he, he is completely uh, useless with regards to Bitcoin. He's not useful in any way at all, but he is useful outside of Bitcoin. And I feel I have similar feelings about Roger Ver. Roger Ver was very useful to me at one point in terms of trying to understand freedom and trying to understand parts of Bitcoin, but now he's completely useless. He doesn't understand Bitcoin. I think he was hurt by Bitcoiners too. Yeah, but we, we, all, we can all have that comment. You've been hurt by Bitcoiners too, saying mean things about you on Twitter. I think it, I think it went. My feelings. I think it went deeper for Roger than he might admit. Well, when you go from Bitcoin Jesus, like I think Roger's problem is he became Bitcoin Jesus, which is a really crap label to receive. To then 
having an idea you have completely rejected that possibly hurt him but that is an that is an ego problem and with an ego you have to have an ego death mm. and he just didn't have the ego death and now he's he still hasn't given up on bitcoin cash when nobody gives a fuck like nobody get when i say nobody i say relatively small amount of people nobody new comes into bitcoin and then goes to bch any people who care about bch now cared about it four years ago or three years ago whatever their time period was where it had a small amount of relevance nobody goes to bch now unless they're a fucking idiot idiot and that's a shame because not even peter schiff goes to bch not even peter schiff but i would happily have peter schiff here opposite me and have that conversation with him or talk about things outside of Bitcoin. I would still talk to Roger Veer, but we could not discuss Bitcoin because it would be a pointless conversation. And it's a shame. It is. He was sincere. He really believed. Yeah. So what did Peter, sorry, what did uh, the Adam Smith book do for you? Tell people who Adam Smith is if they don't know him. I've never actually read The Wealth of Nations, which is why I've written it down. Well, I never read the whole thing either, but sometimes I teach some Uh of the famous portions. So he was a Scottish economist in the 18th century living what was called the Scottish Enlightenment. So this was a group of thinkers around Edinburgh, David Hume, who was a friend of Adam Smith's, basically inventing what we now know as political economy or economics. And the big question of the wealth of nations was, why are nations wealthy? How, how is it that capital is formed? How is it that some nations get rich and others don't? What, what are the underlying mechanisms here? And the big answer throughout was markets. So that was Adam Smith's big discovery, was thinking systematically about how markets create prosperity. And of course, this is a theme that you can see in other economists ever since. But he was one of the people who really put it in a, I wouldn't say punchy way, because it's a two-volume set that I've never read the whole thing of. But uh, I think he discovered uh, the mechanism that, uh, that underlies all of that and put it together in a really attractive way. So that's the thing he's known for. I've never heard somebody uh, refer to economics as political the political economy. Economics used to be called political economy. Never knew that. Do you know that, Danny? Nope. Never heard that. Uh, makes sense. It's interesting that they dropped the political part, isn't it? Well, because it's, it really it alludes to propaganda. Yeah, and I think it's also specialization in academia. We get further and further apart from each other. So there's political science over here. There's economics and there's their intersection, political economy. But a lot of economists don't know about that bit. And a lot of the political scientists are economically ignorant. Another thing Perry Amber brought up this morning, she also said uh, economics has nothing to do with math. Interesting. Yeah. She said it's all about humans and incentives. Hmm. It's got nothing to do with math. I don't think you'd learn that if you took a modern economics degree course. She said the reason she took uh, economics because she wanted to do the math part because there were math classes that went with it. Right, But she said, economics really isn't anything to do with math. Yeah, if you think of economics as the study of human behavior under scarcity, then it's not fundamentally math. Maybe math is one useful tool that we could and should use. But you wouldn't think of it, I think, the way that a lot of modern economists do, which is uh, that it's uh, something like calculus. Yeah. The study of curves. So you're you're a professor? I'm afraid so. You're a professor where? Can you say that? I teach at Yale and U.S. College. It's a small school in Singapore, jointly founded by Yale and the National University of Singapore. And I teach philosophy, politics, and economics there. Philosophy, politics, and economics. And if you're discussing uh, uh, teaching economics there, are you teaching that there are different competing schools of economics? Or are you uh, 
a Keynesian economist. The, the part of, I'm not going to answer the question as you phrased it. Okay. You I, know I, what I'm getting at. That, that's right. Again, I bring that up only because we did the interview with Perry Ann, but we also did another interview recently with somebody who studied economics. I studied economics at A-level. I don't know if you understand the British system, but A-levels is 16 to 18. Singapore does it that way too. Right, okay. Yeah. And uh, we were taught Keynesian economics. We had a whole, pretty much a whole semester on Keynesian economics. It was, and it wasn't studied as a competing school of economics. It was studied or taught as this is economics. That's not the way I think about it or the way I teach it. Yeah. I don't teach the techie side of econs because I'm not good at calculus. Okay. What I teach is the stuff that intersects, especially with philosophy. So the stuff that isn't all about demand curves or about indifference curves or whatever other technical devices economists use now. I do have a thought about Keynes. I think when... Bitcoiners talk shit about Keynes. They miss that he was more than just a macroeconomist who said some wonky things, maybe dangerous things, maybe things that are uh, influential to the worse. Uh, he also said a, a bunch of other things too. And there's one great essay from him. I just got a plug. It's called Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. And it's really interesting to read this. That. <laughs> that wasn't what he thought it was. He saw this prosperous future where productivity continued to go up and that all of us could work four-hour days. So one great question is, Dr. Keynes, or maybe it was Mr. Keynes, what happened in 1971? Why, why is it that we don't have four-hour workdays? Productivity continued to rise, at least for a, a big part of the 20th century, but, but something broke. And, and he was predicting the rise. He didn't predict the break. And he was wondering, well, what, what are we going to do with our time? It, it's a great essay. It's one of these bits of, it's kind of like speculative futurology or science fiction. I'm just dreaming about what the possibilities could be. And I think that Keynes is deeply appealing and interesting and humanist. And Bitcoiners might like it, even if they don't like anything else he said about you know, the paradox of thrift and stuff like that. So he had good intentions. People talk about Karl Marx in a similar way they talked about Keynes then because people talk about Karl Marx as somebody who had uh, has a great observer, great intentions, but it was the application of his ideas which are the issue. Yeah, Marx was a great social scientist in this respect. He really had a great mind for putting together theories, these abstract hunches or intuitions we have with data and seeing if we could support or disconfirm the theory with the data. And, and uh, he was basically inventing social science as we know it now, which is kind of the intersection of numbers plus people. Uh, unfortunately, in, in my view, a, a lot of his ideas just turn out to be false. Yes, and the application of his ideas. Dangerous. Dangerous. Yeah. Uh, and still, still today, some people... Uh, think his ideas have just not impl been implemented correctly. We haven't had real Marxism. Oh dear. <laughs> I'm surprised people haven't said, we don't have real Keynesian econ economics. You know, Peter, somebody said that somewhere, I'm sure. I'm sure they did. <laughs> somewhere on, on Twitter. In your teaching, how much freedom do you have in terms of what you want to teach and how you want to teach uh, with regards to like uh, a syllabus? Do you have absolute freedom or is there certain constraints around what you can teach? Some of my teaching is in the common curriculum within my college, which is the classes that all students take, and those are team-taught. So all syllabus decisions are made by the team. So very little freedom in a way there, except over time, where you iterate and persuade colleagues and build coalitions to make the changes you want. But when teaching my own courses, near full autonomy. Excellent. 
So guess what I've been teaching about for, I don't know, last four years plus. Bitcoin Cash? Close. <laughs> One of those words was accurate. <laughs> well, that's, that's amazing. Um, and I imagine your students absolutely love this class and love the fact that they're doing something completely different, that they're at the forefront of real economics. Well, I think reflecting carefully about money and Bitcoin, both of these things are catnip for students. And if you can do them together in a responsible way, I found not only do I get like the enrollment, like students, uh, you know, their butts and seats, but they get something out of it. At least I, I hope they do. And I think, I think they do. That's what the alumni tell me later. And uh, how much of it, like, do you have, I was talking to Perry Ann about this as well, in that uh, I went to university and I went to a shit one and just studied a shit course and left and it was terrible. Uh, I was telling her I romanticize, I'm going to say American uh, higher studies because I imagine, I said to her, I imagine these large amphitheater classrooms full of, uh, uh, full of students debating with their professor and their professor encouraging debate and encouraging questioning. We don't get that at school. My kids aren't encouraged to question. I encourage them at home to question. Good. Question me, question school, don't, don't trust anything, don't believe anything. I always have this example, my son, my son was a, a drama student and he had to do a, a monologue as one of his performances. And uh, the monologue he picked out was one that was done by, a, what was the name of the kid who was in Dune? Uh, Shileman. Timothy Shileman. Yeah, Timothy Shileman. He found a monologue that Timothy Shileman did as a student. I think it was that one. I could be wrong, but anyway. And the piece was set during, um, I think it was, either, it was, it was the post-slave era, era. I'm going to get some of this wrong, in, in the US. And so the piece had some racist connotations in it. But my son, as a fan of the actor, I thought the piece was good and wanted to do it. And uh, he presented it to the, the teacher, and the teacher said, I don't think you should do this because there's racist connotations to it. And my son came home disappointed. And I, and I said, is the piece itself racist or is the piece itself a reflected, reflective of a period of racism? And he said, well, it's... it's he didn't understand the full question, but he said, it's just about that time. I said, well, do you want to do it? And he said, yes. I said, well, why can't you? And he said, the teacher was worried that there may be some black people in the audience who would be offended. So I said, well, what do you think about that? He said, well, it's, it's you know, performance art. I mean, my view is that it's racist to say you can't do it. <laughs> like this teacher is creating a situation that isn't racist and turn it into one. So I said, you, as my son, are welcome to go back and demand to the teacher, this is the piece you do, and you're willing to question them. And if you don't agree with their decision, you're, you are welcome, and like under my approval, to refuse to do anything else. Like you can challenge this. I mean, obviously he said, no, Dad, I'm not going to do that. That was, that was a, a gift to offer, that freedom. Yeah, because they're not taught to challenge. I say it to my daughter every time. She says, I don't want to do my homework. I like, don't do your homework then. Tell your teacher why. Tell, you, tell that teacher what you did instead. They don't teach any of this. I mean, I'm a dick, so I want my kids to be like that. I want them to be challenging and spiky. And, but I, that's what I always hope that happens at higher education. And I kind, of, I kind of hope maybe you are like Robin Williams and Dead Poet Society. I don't know about that, but I think the question is a powerful tool. For a teacher, yeah. not to tell someone the way things are, but to ask them something interesting and see what happens. It can be magic. And have you found teaching Bitcoin, it forces people to question more, forces students to question more? 
it makes us question everything. Hell yeah. A good question opens up, I'm afraid, more questions, which in turn open up more questions. And the fundamental questions about Bitcoin are very fruitful in that way. They just generate more and more of the same. And that's magic in the classroom when you get somebody wondering and not just trying to answer the question that you just asked, but responding with questions of their own. And of course, you can't do this forever. Sometimes you have to just write an essay or figure something out. But uh, that, that's the magic. That, that's, that, that's where it's at. That's what I aim for as a teacher. Is, uh, Could I make an observation? Please do. You described the, uh, the interaction with your son. And I think you gave like three questions in a row. You were asking him questions until, instead of saying, I think you should do it, I think you should. You asked him questions. Yeah, no, I do that's, all the that's time. That's the way to do it. Yeah, I do all that's the, the time. That's the way to teach. Well, because the other thing about the, the, having children right now, we're in a very difficult time to have children for two reasons. They're, they're living through a reset of some kind. I don't, I don't mean like the World Economic Forum's great reset, but they're, they're certainly living through a reset. They're living through a time of uh, increasing uh, well, growth in authoritarianism and surveillance within Western liberal democracies. But they're living at a time where there's massive change in technology. Uh, it's like that, um, there's a TED talk we used, we've watched, that guy, he's a teacher. He said, teach a kid to dance. You must have seen it. And you know, this kid wants to dance. And he's saying, you know, we're teaching, we don't know where we're going to be in five years. And we've got five-year-olds. We don't know the world they're going to be in 20 years. You know, what skills do we need to teach them? So... With my kids, it's like, I don't, we, when my daughter's 20 and entering the work, 22 entering the, the world of work, we don't know what jobs are going to be available, what types. So I think one of the most important skills is, is the ability to, to stand out and be different, to question things. Not to, not to be just some, someone who's able to go in a cubicle and complete a task, because we don't know what those tasks will be. And plus, they'll be mind-numbingly boring. It's hard to teach. I, I believe it can be taught. You have to give people freedom to take risks and not punish them when they take the risks. Hmm. They have to have environments where they can flex that muscle of risk tolerance. And for me, that's one place that the classroom is. It's a place where we can say the weird, the outrageous, the dubious things as we're processing through and to not be punished for them by peers or by a professor. I think of a podcast like that, but, but we do get punished for them. <laughs> But I do think it... This I is think, your other podcast or this one? <laughs> no, I think this is a place to question and think about things and test ideas. That's why this show isn't just a bunch of right-wing libertarians confirming why Bitcoin is amazing. And you know, it's a place where we talk to everybody, you know, from somebody who is a professor to somebody who is an economist to somebody who's a... Like all different people. Um, let me ask you, so Bitcoin... Is Bitcoin a solution to the problem or is Bitcoin a theory? I want to say both as if it's a trick question. But I'm it's not, not a trick that. question. The, the, I, what I'm getting at is uh, one of the questions me and Danny ask ourselves a lot is, are we wrong about Bitcoin? I don't know the answer to that. Mm. I have a thought about the theory question. I think of Bitcoin in some ways as an anti-theory. It's more like something that bulldozes through the theories that pre-existed it. So here, here's a view, and, and you can probably think of a bunch of these. Here's just a, an example. Here, here's a view that was standard. On the one hand, we have commodity monies. These cost something to make. On the other hand, we have fiat monies, which have no intrinsic value and cost nothing to make. Commodity monies do have intrinsic value. That is, they have use value. You can burn them, eat them, they're shiny, and so on. 
what Bitcoin shows us is it's actually possible to combine these characteristics. Nobody's ever done that before. It's costly to produce and it has no intrinsic value. The fact that it has no intrinsic value means that the design space is opened up in ways that it's not for commodity money. And the fact that it costs something to produce means that it's not just a shitcoin. So there's this theory or a standard way of thinking about what monies are even possible. Bitcoin isn't like a new theory about what kinds of money are possible. It's more like a bulldozer that says, you're all wrong. You need more tools to think properly about money. Here's a totally new kind of money that is kind of like fiat, kind of like gold, and kind of like neither. So I think Bitcoin can do that in a variety of other ways too. It's, it's, not, it's not a theory. It's more like a, something that shows us we were wrong before. Are you more interested in the philosophy of money or the uh, application of economics? I know more. I'm better at philosophy because that's where my degrees right. and my training are in. But I'm super interested in the econ stuff and I'm trying to learn more so that I can be a more effective teacher and researcher on that side of things. And really the intersection, that's, that's the forefront that's this bit, you know, with the Venn diagram where the two meet. Yeah. That's, it's so poorly understood, but so vital, I think, to understand our dynamic world. Because it's right in that intersection where so many interesting things are happening. So I question, therefore, what does, what does good money mean? And how do we class a successful money? And let me frame what, what I'm thinking. Is that... When we recently just sat down with Stephen Lubka and we talked about fiat money, the uh, the way it distorts the markets, it distorts prices, um, that's absolutely true. But could we also argue that with Keynesian economics and the money printer, that extra money has uh, sped up the advancement of society and that is led to more innovation? I mean, we talked about... Uh, uh, venture capital firms having access to cheap capital, but perhaps that cheap capital has led to advancements in technology, which has led to advancements uh, in development of, of positive drugs. I know negative drugs as well. Like it's very obviously difficult to create a net calculation, but would a would a Bitcoin-based uh, economy have slowed advancement? Would have it slowed development? And would have it change how society would have shaped like that? Could it be a net more dangerous society because there isn't that kind of shield of protection for government in certain areas? Now, there's thousands of inputs to these because somebody who is anti-fiat could say, well, military-industrial complex or, you know, you know widen a wealth gap. But somebody you know, who positive fiat would say, uh, world, world police protection. Like, there's different ways you can look at it and your bias will certainly influence it. That goes around in my mind a lot. I always think it's important to question it rather than just cheerlead it. Yeah, and I think that's what Bitcoin does in an unsettling way for many people. It raises these questions. I'd like to make a distinction between two kinds of questions about okay. money and the best kinds of money. There are some properties that make something useful as money. Let's call these aptness properties. These are things that make it a useful medium of exchange, the primary role of money. So it's things like durability, divisibility, you're familiar with the yep. list. There's a less studied question by, by monetary economists, which, which might be surprising, right? The people whose job it is to study money, which is not what makes something a better or worse money, at, at better at being money, but rather what, are the, what kinds of money have better or worse externalities or consequences for the rest of the world? And obviously, these are hard to foresee sometimes. The effects 
the higher order effects of selecting one kind of money over another. Now, now Bitcoin, you, you can size it up against other monies on either of these dimensions. And it, it might turn out that it's worse in some ways, better in some others. But I think one of the unsettling things that Bitcoin does, and this is why we're so resistant to it when we first encounter it, I don't know how, how many times it took you. It took me a couple of times to see it as more than anything as uh, like funny money for libertarians or like the speculative bet. I try to never allow myself to fully see it. That's wise. You should always ask this question. Yeah. But it's, but it's unsettling to ask that. Like, mm. okay, wait a minute. What if, what if we've collectively selected a money that has negative externalities? What if we're encountering them now? The grand experiment since 1971 is turning out to not be so great. This is not, not a totally happy thought to have. Uh, we need a bottle of wine. I'm having a drink for this conversation. You don't have to, but I want to glass Let, let's of wine. Wait, let's wait till we got five minutes left and I'll have a glass. <sighs> this is a glass of wine conversation. All right, I'm fair. Yes. I'm having fun so far. I hope you are. Yeah, it's no, but, but this is the point. Like, I'm always questioning it because I worry about the negative externalities. I've decided Bitcoin, personally, outside of the podcast, I've decided on Bitcoin. I've chosen Bitcoin, right? But as a podcaster releasing content for an audience, I haven't allowed myself to get fully there. And I never allow myself to get fully there. I think if you became a pure cheerleader, I don't think you'd be as successful. If I didn't have Danny, I wouldn't be as successful. I hope you don't lose that. What, Danny? Danny, or, <laughs> or this, this kind of uh, intellectual honesty. And I think that's one reason you and Troy connected well. It looked to me like, like you did. Yeah, Troy, Troy. Troy's an old friend. Love Troy. He speaks one, very highly of you. Oh, it was, uh, he had a really nice moment talking about me. I, hi, Troy. Hi, Troy. <laughs> one of the things I admire about him is his intellectual honesty. And I think, I think you connected yeah. on that point. But we do, we question it a lot, don't we, Danny? Mm -hmm. Yeah, oh, we you better. especially. Yeah. One of the things that you have to really fight as a content creator is audience capture. It's really difficult because if there is a certain cohort or a certain group of people who have a particular set of opinions, you are rewarded for echoing those per permissions and you are punished for, uh, not for challenging, but maybe disagreeing and that for disrupting their expectations. Of yes, you. that's it. Disrupting their expectations of you. That's you've put it perfectly. And, uh, that also can have an economic personal economic impact because of the risks of one being canceled two being ignored three. Um, there's no three, those two primary ones. And that's why I think so many people get audience captured because uh, they get the likes, the follows, the confirmation, and they grow what their thing is. So, you know, there's a parallel to money. Money is this thing that we want. We strive for it. We dream of it. How often do you check the Bitcoin price? <laughs> How often do you think about your portfolio? You know, those, those are behavioral manifestations of the way that money, we want it, yes, but then... It comes to control us. At least that is a very real worry. And it's not just those f who have a lot of it who have to worry about this. Of course, they maybe have to worry more that the things you own end up owning you, to, to quote Fight Club. Yeah. Uh, and Eric Weinstein was the one who made us think about that. The first time I interviewed him, it was a very challenging interview, and I did a shit job. Uh, but he said, you're talking your book. 
I remember that. And I felt like I was trying to convince him on Bitcoin. I was like, what am I trying to do this for? I'm, in, I'm here to interview, not debate you. One, I'm terrible at debating, it's not my job. But so since then, I'm always questioning Bitcoin and I never allow myself to. Have you told him that? Um, yes, we, I have told him that. You I should. Actually, People like it when you learn from them yeah. and then you tell them. Here's what I learned from you. Well, no, I put out a tweet thread about exactly what I got wrong in the mm. whole interview. And he retweeted it and said, uh, well, he said something along the, what was it, Dave? Something along the lines of, oh, don't worry, I can be a right dick sometimes. <laughs> he was good about it. We did a follow-up interview and it was magic. We, we, we got on really well. But, but, but I think you're right. There's this expectation that people have. And when you, when you miss that expectation, it disappoints them. But that is their problem and their weakness, not mine. It could be yours. That's up to you. Huh. I think of money as that way too. So Bitcoiners are used to talking about the bad effects of money, of a bad money, that yeah. is. But we just listened to uh, an interview about that very topic. We can go, about, go on about that. I think one thing that Bitcoin has done to me is to think more deeply about money, so like what money is, but also to see more clearly that money, even good money, can be dangerous. Yes. How's... It can be dangerous for those who have it. The, the way it has a hold over our own hearts, our own desires, the way it captures us, just the way an audience might capture a content maker. And so the thing that you think you own is like, oh, I have so many followers, this is my account. And the ownership language there uh, ends up owning you, controlling you. So it does the exact opposite. Money's supposed to be a tool of freedom. Uh, but but it, it can enslave us too. Yeah, Krishnamurti talks about that in a slightly different way. Judo Krishnamurti, he talks about it. Do you know him, Indian philosopher? I, I know the name, but so he talked more. about you shouldn't own stuff and things. You should get away from owning stuff and things because he talks about the person who has the big house, has the yard, has the garden, has the fence. Now that person has to think about the house and the garden and then the fence and look after that. And the more stuff you accumulate, the more distractions you have in your life from exploring uh, truth and exploring the world and living like a fruitful life, these things own you. It's the same point. And I think you strive for money, then you're, if once, you, once you, you don't have money. Well, some of my happiest times, I was broke because I didn't have any money. Like I, I had a wage, sorry, I had money, but not wealth. You know, I had money, but I hadn't accumulated any stuff. Then you earn money, and then, then you fear losing it. And you know that fear gets worse. S sitting from the outside, you might think, oh, no, I should worry less and less about money the more I have of it. But in fact, the opportunity cost of stepping out of the rat race or of loss gets higher and higher. So it can have this effect that we worry more the more we have. I wonder if it's a worry of losing the money you have itself or losing the status that the money has afforded you. Because I think it can obviously be both. Yeah, money represents a lot for us. It's, in a way, it represents all material things. Because yeah. you can trade money for anything that's for sale. Yeah. So it makes it, it, it grabs our attention. It's like an attention magnet in ways that other things of value aren't. So our, here, here's a, a goofy example. So here's, here's something of value. It's worth like a thousand bucks. You won't look at it when I put it on the table. Totally uninteresting. But if I go like this, this is not worth as much as the iPhone. I put a $100 reel on the table. Yeah, I like that. And yet when I do this in the classroom, do you know where the students' eyes are? 
on the $1,000 thing or the $100 thing? Of course, they're looking here. You can't take your eyes off of it. You should put some pounds on the table as well. There we go. You ever seen British money? You ever been to the UK? Oh, Why well, don't know if you've been there? Some people haven't. I've been to Scotland only. That's not British I was, I was happy to be there in Scotland That's only. Scotless Scottish money is worth less. Buy you less. We don't accept their money down south. Yes, just, just think about the, the simple fact that we pay attention to these way more than we pay attention to even things of greater value. Yeah. It has this pull on us. We should say, you've put, just so people don't know, there's a, there's a hundred dollar on the hundred dollar note on the table. Who's that on the front? Is that Benjamin Franklin? I don't it know. It is. It is. You can't have it. You can't have this. If you had twenty dollars, I would give you twenty pounds. At the moment, that's a good trade. Correct parity. Okay. Well, no, no. We, we, that's a better trade for you right now. Oh, okay. Would you take twenty dollars for twenty pounds? No. What would you? What? I mean, you just told me I should. So, okay, maybe I would. You but. would. I mean, it's what twenty pounds is probably about twenty three dollars. Twenty three dollars. Twenty dollars. Yeah. I try to acquire the money that I think I'll need. So I have Singapore dollars and U.S. dollars in Bitcoin for United States, for Singapore, and for the future. How much would you sell twenty dollars for now? This is like a, a trick question. You know, a philosopher is going to get this wrong, but sure, just just for the sake, I'll, I'll give you twenty for it well, right now. You, so this trade now, you've made more money than I have. Okay. Right. Let's uh, let's save these notes till we next meet. Okay. And let's see who has more money. Because I think I think I won that trade based on the fact we've time-locked this money until I next see you again. You have to keep that in your wallet. I'll keep this. So I've given up good money for bad. Uh, I think you've given, I've given up bad money for worse. Yeah, bad money for worse. But I, I think when we next meet, you made the, you made the better. No, no, I made the better trade there. We'll see. I just, just fucked you over. Um, Thank you. So, so with your students, do you, how, where's the starting point? Like, on the philosophical side, do you just start with what is money? Are you trying to teach them what is money holistically or what it is to them? More the latter. Yeah. And in fact, that's what got me thinking about this as a class to regularly offer, an interdisciplinary class on money. I had older students come to me who were looking forward to careers in finance, management, consulting, they would eventually be making, in fact, very quickly be making a lot more than me and eventually be making quite a bit more than me. Th these will be high-flying, uh, rich people yeah. if they're not already rich. And as, as students do, they come to you with an existential crisis. Like, well, I'm, I'm interning at Barclays, at Goldman Sachs. I'm not happy. I want more money and I'm incentivized to get more of it. And the more money I make, the greater the opportunity cost of opting out is. So it's actually harder to opt out of the long hours of the intrusive work of this obsessive money-chasing game. So uh, is that good? Is that bad? What do I do about this? Help. So there's, there's one student in particular. I won't say his name. Uh, but we'll, we'll, call him, we'll call him Derek. So, so I started thinking, you know what? I need to offer a class about this, exploring these kinds of questions like what is the role of money in a good life? How much is enough? And money has power over us. Is there a way to, to think well about that and to maybe not be so controlled by money? So as I think of things, these are, these are the theoretically interesting questions. They're rich. They connect to that question what money is. They connect, of course, to Bitcoin and many other things. But they're also deeply practical. And for the people I'm trying to serve, they're intensely practical. So you're trying to help them... Be happy. Be happy. I want them to be the best versions of themselves, hmm. to live thoughtful lives. And 
in the money class, we're living thoughtful lives with respect to money. So, you know, we sort of zoom in the mission. That's obviously impossibly big to say, I want to help you be a better person. Okay, but I can help you think better about money and your interactions with it and the hold it has over you and figure out how much you want and why. Because nobody on their deathbed ever thinks, I wish I'd worked more. The regrets are usually the same. That's right. I wish I'd spent more time with my children. I wish I'd spent time and looked after my health more. Not that I wish I'd worked the, every weekend when I was with Goldman. So I'd have been even richer. It's a strange man who dies with that thought on his mind. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Yeah. An unusual man. Do you really have to, you have to really, I guess, help people? Because I'm, sorry, I'm going to jump back. People don't often think about the nature of money. No, it's like water to a fish. Yes. So I have my friends in Bitcoin and my friends out of Bitcoin. Friends of Bitcoin, they spend a lot of time thinking about money. Friends out of Bitcoin, they haven't. Uh, could, I, could I make a, a small thought yeah. there? I think they think about money, but mostly they think about getting more of it. Mm. So not what it is. They're not reflecting about Bitcoin, or I'm sorry, about, about money, Freudian slip. Yeah, it's like when they... It's buy, on their mind. When mind they, on my money, money on my mind, but not in this reflective way. Well, when they buy a car, there's a handful who understand the, the engine of the car they're buying. And most people just buy a car because they, they like the look of it or like the brand. And they, it just is something that gets them A to B. They don't think about the nature of how the car does that. And I think money's similar. Very few people think about that. Some are forced to. If you go to Venezuela, they're forced to think about the nature of money because it melts in front of them. Mm. And people in Turkey are forced to think about it. And you know this because in these countries, the dollar has a black market. So people are forced to think about it. There's no dollar black market in the UK, despite the fact that it's, it's because it's melting slower. So a lot of people don't think about the nature of money. They don't think about that there is an alternative to sovereign currencies. It just doesn't happen unless, which is why, it's why uh, low inflation is so insidious. Hmm. Whereas high inflation forces you to think about money. What is money? A store of value. People don't think about a store of value often. Not everyone. Yeah, and I think human psychology is sensitive or more sensitive to change than to information. And maybe a picture of that, think about the T-Rex in Jurassic Park. Does the T-Rex respond to people? Picture, you know, like images of people in front of it? No, it responds to change. It's when the people move quickly, when there's a, the, the flare moving back and forth. It's, it's, it's more efficient to have a, a perceptual system that responds to delta rather than to information, to change over time. And what that means is that when the change over time is slow, we don't notice it. I'm pleased to welcome my new sponsor, Ledin, to the podcast. From savings and accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. Now, with recent events in the lending industry, Ledin demonstrated that their robust risk management strategy was the right approach, and they are building out one of the best financial service providers in Bitcoin. Now, they don't actively trade or invest in DeFi yield generation nonsense and have experienced zero losses as a result of their strategy. They only support Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. 
They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they will re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. Not only are they a sponsor, I am also a customer of theirs now. I love the service, love what they're doing, love the team, and pleased to be working with them. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. Also, we have the Pacific Bitcoin Conference hosted by Swan Bitcoin on November the 10th and 11th this year in sunny Los Angeles. Now, I've known the team over at Swan for ages, Corey, Jan, Brady, and they're pulling out all the stops to make Pacific Bitcoin a celebration of the Bitcoin community. And I cannot wait to get out there. I do love LA. I will be emceeing the conference along with my good friend, Natalie Brunel and Stefan Navera. And there's going to be an incredible lineup of speakers. You know these people, Lynn Alden, Alice Gladstein and Preston Pish. It's going to be great. Now, Pacific Bitcoin is going to be the right mix of education and fun with some unique experiences. They've got a surfing simulator and they've loaded the conference with parties before and after the event. They're bringing together the brightest minds in Bitcoin to discuss a range of topics from macro to nation state adoption, mining to lightning. Now, you do not want to miss the inaugural Pacific Bitcoin Conference. I know it's going to be a special event. As I said, I cannot wait to get out there. I do love LA. Now, Swan are offering a huge 30% discount to listeners of the show. Just go to pacificbitcoin.com and use the code PETER at checkout. That is P-A-C-I-F-I-C-B-I-T-C-O-I-N.com, pacificbitcoin.com and use the code PETER. Next up, it is Ledger. Now, recent events this year have highlighted just how important self-custody is. And Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin and the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger recently announced the launch of the new Nano S Plus and the larger screen makes it easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions. The Nano S Plus maintains the same high level of security of all Ledger products. And listen, I have been using Ledger products since 2017. Five years is crazy, right? And absolutely love everything they've done. They are my favorite wallet provider, and they have absolutely crushed it this year. Now, if you do want to find out more, if you want to purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. Next up is BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino. It is trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide. And not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they also offer fast withdrawals and some amazing VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is the best Bitcoin casino out there. Now, if you want to find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. So how were you, how were you orange-pilled? And at that time... How did you reflect on Bitcoin and, and the nature of everything you taught previously? And was it like a real fork in the road? Did you have to question everything you'd done previously? I think I, I, when I, it, it's hard to answer questions like this because there's a bit of narrative or myth telling. You, know, you, you, look, myth. you look backwards and start to tell a story about yourself. It doesn't make it wrong. It might be true. But it's, it's a story that you can only tell looking backwards. But when I, when I try to do that, I see at least two forks. The first fork was whether to buy Bitcoin or not. Yes. 
And for me, that was not all that difficult because some of my good friends simply told me to. And I looked and I thought, this is so cool. It might catch on. You might want to have some. So that was in uh, 2014. And it didn't occur to me that it could be interesting beyond a speculative bet until some time later. And it was really my friendships with Troy, Troy Cross, Craig Warmke, Brad Rettler. And Craig, Brad, and I had to make a decision in early 2020. This was actually before March 2020, before the shit hit the fan and, and you know, asset prices started to do weird things and the money printer started to go burr and all that. And, and we had to decide, do we want to give our careers to Bitcoin or not? We actually made the decision before March 2020. It was about February. Like, okay, we're going to wind down our other research projects because we think this is a civilization-shaping technology. Maybe it's not fire or the printing press, but it's really important. This is the big thing of our lifetimes to, to really think deeply about. So wind down our other research projects and start working together be. more and more. It might. I can't say it won't. I'm not totally sure. Well, it, it, might dis, it, it might destroy part of the printing press. Ideally, the printing press that prints the money. Well, there you go. And it, it, it's, uh, it's an anti-printing press. There are plenty of people who will say that Bitcoin is the most important te technology innovation of our time. And they will say electricity, railroads, internet, tech, uh, Bitcoin. It, and we won't really know... We, we can we can uh, we can write our hypothesis on what it will be, but we will only know retrospectively that it is because in forty years' time, books will be written on the transition to Bitcoin and why it happened and what it meant. At the moment, it's potential. Like at the time of the internet, there were people who said with the internet, "This is going to change everything." And other people like Paul Krugman, "No, it won't." Now we know how fundamentally different the world is because of mm. the internet. We will maybe know 20, 30, 40 years, maybe, maybe beyond our lifetimes. I think it was a couple of years of teaching about money and thinking about money, not only in connection to Bitcoin, but just money. And then having a crew to work with, these things converged together. So, you know, the, I guess there's, there's three inputs to that. There's the Bitcoin interest, there's a crew, and there's this background of thinking about money. And those, those converged in February 2020 or so. So we decided to start writing on this and to write about nothing else eventually. So our, our other research projects are winding down. Have you all got together physically? Yes, we had five weeks together at the University of Wyoming this summer. Wow. And uh, I had five weeks with Brad. Craig was with us for two of those five weeks. And Troy? Troy was not. You've not had the five. You've not had the whole gang together. Not yet, but we need to make that happen, and I want to be there. I just want to be in the corner of the room watching this. It would be crazy, man. When you get enough philosophers together, I'm, I'm not sure you want to see that. I, do you want to see that? <laughs> I want to see that. Fuck yeah, I want to see that. But there's something that Troy said, it may have been on your podcast, may have been somewhere else, that his drug of choice, and he's speaking for all philosophers here, he said his, my drug of choice is ideas. So in a way, I'm high all the time. <laughs> there's something deeply right about that. That's what philosophers love. We love ideas and we love to get high on them. And you get a bunch of us in a room together and we'll say some pretty zany stuff. But Bitcoin has always taken me back to the real world. That's one difference between the work that we do on Bitcoin and 
any of the research and the thinking and teaching I've done in philosophy that's highly abstract and theoretical because Bitcoin answers to the real world. It has a price. It has people who use it. It has people who desperately need it. And so whether we're right or wrong about Bitcoin matters in ways that speculative stuff about free will or about the nature of material objects or time, these things just don't matter. They don't have that concreteness that Bitcoin does. But there is a resistance to Bitcoin as well. People, people resist it. People actively campaign against it. People, there are certain people who will lie about it. They will. Uh, and I know you can go to incentives. So when, the, when that comes from somebody connected to a government. Yeah, Digiconomist, DeFreeze, you fucking moron. Um, but there are people who actively, they kind of hate it. <laughs> it feels like they hate it. And there are those who feel like they hate it because they discovered it early and forgot to buy some. But there are others who I don't understand the hatred that some people have towards it. Bitcoiners can be, I don't know if you noticed this, pretty annoying. <laughs> that, that's got to be part of it. Maybe, yeah. We get, we get obsessed and we refuse to talk about anything else and we display cult-like behavior. And that doesn't make us bad but it will make us annoying to some people. Yeah, no, I get that. M maybe also it's people don't like their cheese being moved. Mm -hmm. Scared of change, implication. Yeah. Uh, we question sometimes. I, I came to a realization recently. I used to question uh, the transition to Bitcoin and how chaotic that might be and what, the what, what might come out of that chaos, which might mean blood, death, disaster, war, revolution. And I used to hold that, uh, like a, I used to hold that personally, like I have a deep responsibility to this. I'm doing something that is disseminating information about Bitcoin. Then in, in part, this show might be part of the acceleration of that happening. And what if I'm wrong? What if I contributed hmm. to something like that? But then I came to a realization very recently that this acceleration is happening because of the failures of fiat money and therefore it's, it's a natural response. It's not your fault. <laughs> <laughs> it's not your fault. <laughs> it's not your fault. <laughs> uh, stop it, man. You, I will fucking cry. That is... That's our second Robin Williams reference. <laughs> there we go. That is one of my favorite moments of any film ever. Ever. They earn it. Oh, man, that film is so good. If you haven't seen it, if you haven't seen it, what the hell are you doing with your life? But this is a famous moment between Robin Williams and Matt Damon. Um, and uh, I, I remember uh, getting my son to watch this film. He fucking... Loves it. God, why can't I? I'm always bad with names. I always forget names. What's the film? Goodwill Hunting. Goodwill Hunting, that's it. How'd you like those apples? Uh, yeah. It's not my fault. <laughs> well done. So, uh, uh, what is money, man? What is money, Andrew Bailey? I've had a little fight on Twitter with some Bitcoiners about this. Who, who specifically were you fighting? Oh, I, I won't name names. But here's something that Bitcoiners like to say, and it's, I'm not totally sure where this came from. They say that money is that which fulfills three roles, store value, unit of account, medium of exchange. 
That's not how economists think about money. Economists, when thinking carefully, say money is a commonly accepted medium of exchange. And That's currency. Hmm? But isn't that currency? I, I use that in money interchangeably, or maybe currency is just a species of money. It is, so money is the abstract kind and currency is an instance of it, like, like uh, the dollar is an instance of money. So the dollar is a currency and then money is the bigger category. Why, why are you grinning? No, I'm just listening. I mm. enjoy the interview. <laughs> I <laughs> Me too, man. I get like this. Uh, I've recently discovered that uh, philosophers are my favorite people to interview. Oh, thank you. It's kind, but, but it's. I think uh, a good interview with a philosopher is also a little bit of therapy. And I can imagine some people are going to be listening to this and saying, please shut the fuck up, just let the man talk. But like, I'm using this to deal with uh, things I'm questioning. Therapy, that's not the right word. I have, I'm having a one-to-one uh, uh, philosophy education with a philosophy teacher right now. I'm getting to ask those questions where you get to fire the questions back at me and I get to deal with things I'm dealing with, which might not be the best for the listener, but I fucking love it. Well, you're a professional at asking questions. Yes, but, but I do. You pointed that out to some guest recently. I forget which one. It's like, no, I'm, a, I'm the expert asking questions. I'll ask the question. <laughs> Do you remember this? This was a couple episodes ago. Possibly. I say that a lot. Uh, it may have been Paul Storrs. Yeah. Like, I'll ask the questions. Yeah, that was a tough one. Um, you guys came around. It was rough. Yeah, I mean, it's just like some people are, they, they aren't very good at understanding the, what the audience doesn't understand. Well, Paul needed you. And I don't know if he knows that, but maybe he does now. Yeah. That he needed someone to make him slow down and answer the questions. And he has the answers. And he's, he's a, a terrific Bitcoiner that everybody should pay attention to, in my opinion. No, I agree. Uh, some people don't realize how much smarter they are than other people as well. Uh, where, they see, where they see clarity, others see a mess. Hmm. Uh, it's, it, it's back to the ex-pub thing. Some people see an ex-pub, I see a mess. I see confusion. So, I see, uh, I think, see something I can I, fuck I think up. you're fronting on this. I think you know what an ex-pub is. So many people, Matt O'Dell has told it to you beautifully, at least twice that I've heard. I know what an ex-pub is now, <laughs> but sometimes there's a benefit also to the listener. Yes. I, I think uh, the role of an interviewer sometimes is to disarm two people, is to disarm a guest to uh, feel comfortable answering questions and disarm an audience into not, to feeling comfortable not understanding things. And so you have to do both. Hmm. And there are, I said many times, there's three types of interview. You, if you want to listen to an expert, an expert, uh, go and listen to Stefan Navara dis- discuss with an expert on libertarianism. That, that will be an expert, an expert. My show is a moron and an expert. Where What was Bitcoin uncensored? Is that two morons? Uh, no. It's, it's two no. experts pretending to be two morons. Maybe that's what it is. <laughs> no, I think it's two experts... Uh, Acting like morons, but they—they mm. they are t- two of the smartest people. Oh, especially Junseth, especially um, fantastic. The two of them, I miss—I miss them dearly. Uh, we luckily we get to talk to Junseth, and I was very fortunate enough once to interview the two of them here in Florida in a in a hotel room with all our shirts off. Yeah, just like the old days. <laughs> just like the old days. Yeah, but we had no videos. So we just we just—it was the perfect way to disarm them two at the start. I think of Junseth maybe more than Chris as a kind of jester where he's pretending to be a fool, he dresses like a fool, he talks like a fool, he jokes like a fool, not a fool. 
Yeah. Not at all. He he was the jester and uh, DeRose was the judge. Hmm. And they they worked together perfectly. I yeah. mean, it, if that show was still uh, running today, it, it would be hugely successful. You know, this was an important formative thing for me and maybe in 2016, 2017 when they were active that got me thinking about Bitcoin even things that are commonplace now that we, that we all say, for example, Bitcoin is a bearer asset, not a registered asset. Very important distinction. It was Chris that, uh, in, in my experience, who really articulated that and got clear about how, even though it's on a ledger, it could still be a bearer asset. The, the, so they, they got deep. They were, they were intellectuals. But you know the interesting thing about those two? They only worked together. Yeah. You have Jun Seth on his own, doesn't work. You have DeRose on his own, he tried to do it on his own, didn't work. But the two of them together was absolute magic. It was. Uh, miss you guys. Uh, don't know where DeRose is these days. You don't days. know me, but I miss you too. I've listened to every episode. I've got them all archived on my website. Even though they deleted all of them, I, I kept copies for myself. Do you know they interviewed Perry on Boring? I do. I, you, Danny was you, listening to Did you talk to her about it? No, I didn't. Because you know what? It, I think it was a tough show for her. Mm. And when you go to do an interview, it, you are, it's, it is a man in the arena again. We know it's tough for a guest because we know people get nervous coming on the show, especially now with the production. So I personally never want anyone to be uncomfortable in a seat and never mm. want to push them too hard. I, don't, I want them to enjoy the experience. And then if I've got tough questions, I'm very careful about how I do it and I try and do it in an empathetic way. Um, she, made, she made a mistake that a lot of people have made with regards to blockchain. You know, focusing on blockchain, considering blockchain, uh, being uh, convinced that blockchain can do all these magical other things other than money. And she put herself in that, uh, put herself in the arena, did the interview, and it wasn't good for her. But you know, she, she had that experience and she's carried on. She still operates the Digital Chamber of Commerce and she's doing some good work. She, she is a libertarian at heart. She's, um, and I had a, f a wonderful interview with her today. Oh, great. There, there was nothing good that could come of, so how do you reflect on that interview? Now, I'd ask her personally and uh, separately and do it again sometime. And, but there was, no, there was nothing from that. We had nothing to gain from that mm. in this interview. Uh, well, actually, that's not true. I tell you what, Danny, would have been a good question is to ask her, what did, did she learn anything from that? Mm. Did she reflect on that? I mean, that was, they, they crushed her. I actually felt sorry for her. They were not kind. No, no. That was a that was a crushing, but it, that also was a striking warning to anyone else who thought they could try and hoodwink the likes of DeRose and yep. uh, Junseth with blockchain, not Bitcoin. Yep. You asked me what is money. I yeah. started to go on a rant. <laughs> like, can I pick up that thread? Please do. So Bitcoiners talk about money as having these three constitutive roles, three things that make something a money, and. This kind of annoys economists when they hear Bitcoiners talk this way, because it's not the way they talk, in part because the roles can actually come apart in important ways. It's, it's the medium of exchange role that's definitive, that's at the center of it all. Everything is an asset. Everything that retains value over time is to some extent an asset. Uh, that is a store of value. Uh, asset is just another word for store of value, as uh, Lawrence White, the Bitcoin economist OG, says. So I don't think that gets to the heart of what money is. And unit of account doesn't either because you can make exchanges where you have a different unit of account than is the medium of exchange. 
when you spend money, foreign money, for example, when I spend Singapore dollars in the United States, the dollar, the United States dollar is the unit of account because that's what goods are priced in. Bitcoin's unit of account is the dollar. Yes, exactly. And yet Bitcoin can still be money. Yes. So I think we set ourselves up for weird kinds of intellectual failure when we fixate on these other roles of money. And of course, they can be important in the evolution of a money. They can contribute to the medium of exchange money, uh, role of money. But that's not what money is. Money is a commonly accepted medium of exchange. So how is money different from currency? Money is the abstract substance and then a is, currency is like an instance of it. And then we have units of currency, which are quantized uh, pieces of that abstract substance, or they, they, uh, they, re, they kind of contain that abstract substance. That's how I think of it. Does that seem right? Is, yeah. that, is that not how you would use the words? We, we, don't, we don't need to get into like a semantic well, discussion. Well, this, this is quite interesting because we've had quite a few conversations recently where people have said, do we even know what money is? Jeff Snyder is like, we don't know what money is. Like, we just don't know. And other people have questioned it. Well, I think we don't know what kinds of things could be money. So here, here's a, maybe a goofy analogy. I've used this in, in this book chapter I was just writing, actually. Think about a doorstop. What color is a doorstop? What a doorstop smell like? That's a weird question, right? Yeah. A doorstop is something that stops doors. It could be any color. It could smell like anything. Maybe it will burn at 100 degrees Celsius. Maybe not. Money's like that. Money is whatever it is that is the commonly accepted medium of exchange. What kinds of things can be money? We used to think that it was mm, commodities and fiat monies, that these are the two main kinds that they go together, that they, uh, their properties go in a certain way. Well, Bitcoin showed us that there's another kind of money as well. Why is physical money so attractive? I think it... Because you, you mentioned it earlier, and when you brought it out, you it, looked, I, I looked you? and I smiled. Yeah. And we watched a film last night, War Dogs. And there's I haven't a moment. Oh, you've not seen War Dogs? No. Oh, you've got to see War Dogs. Uh, it's Jonah Hill and Miles Teller, and they're arms dealers, accidental arms Should dealers. I rewatch Goodwill Hunting or watch War Dogs? Watch War Dogs. Oh. I mean, Goodwill okay, okay. Good yeah. Hunting is one of those films where I can name probably five or six films that I've seen 20 to 30 times. And every single time I can watch it over and over again. So that's gonna, a tricky You're going to love Brad Rattler. I know. I'm Talk to him about Goodwill Hunting when he's on the show. I know I'm going to love Brad Weller. Do you have a favorite film? I've always liked Being John Malkovich. It might not be the favorite, but maybe top five. It's I'm, a weird, weird movie. It's a mind trip. I met John Malkovich in a in a uh, elevator in London. The weirdest thing. Hey, so I'm on a. Oh God, how do I tell this version of the story? I'm on a date. I'm on a date. There's no point lying about it. I'm on a date, and uh, it's a successful date. And I was staying over in London, and and. We went back to my hotel and we get in the lift and it was that classic moment where somebody puts their foot in the door and the lift opens and they come in and I'm like, in my head I'm like, that's fucking John Malkovich. And I was like, you're John Malkovich, aren't you? And he was like, yeah. So I've got a photo, I'll show you the photo. Me and John Malkovich in the lift. And he, you can meet anyone in a lift in a weird moment. Mm. But I always felt like meeting John Malkovich in a lift is the perfect person to meet in a lift. There's something about him. There's, there's a reason that screenplay was about him and not yeah. somebody else. Have you seen that? No. Oh, man, you got to see it. It's, it's not for everyone. No, no. It's brilliant and weird. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know how to pick between War Dogs because War Dogs is a great film. 
but it's 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 a piece of entertainment. It's not like a great. It's a great piece of entertainment, not a great piece of film. Hmm. Right? It's just entertaining. Whereas Good Will Hunting is a great film. Like it's a brilliant film because of what what it makes you think, what it makes hmm. you question, what it makes you feel, what it makes you feel. Yeah. How do we get to War Dogs? Money. Because we talk about looking at money. Why do we care? There's a bit in the film where they uh, they they go to uh, collect their money from these Berettas they've sold, and they, you see the money machine scanning through the money, and instantly you're like, "Whoa, money!" And then it pans out, and they're in this room full of fucking big, giant blocks of money. What was it? Thirteen point two billion. They Something say. like that. Yeah. And it was all the money Saddam had hoarded, and it was just piles of money. And you're attracted to it. Thinking, just like carve a little bit of that corner of that money off for me, a few million. Mm-hmm. Money plays an outsized role in our minds. There's a lot of psychological research that speaks to that in various ways. One of them, this is kind of a silly example, but maybe it makes the point. When you give children coins and they understand money, so they're old enough to know what money means. And then you ask them later, they've played with some coins. How big were the coins? And they draw on a piece of paper. They overestimate the size of the coins. And they don't do this with other tokens, non-money tokens. So already, even very young, it starts to play this outsized role in their minds. They pay attention to it. We treat it differently than other material objects, even objects that are worth more than the money. Marx thought that this was a kind of fetish. I, I, could, I could fully empathize with that. Yeah. There's something not wrong about that connection. Well, you see it with the likes of or like rappers when they come onto a video and they're, they're waving their big wads of cash. and Or Floyd Mayweather, you'll see if he'll have a photo on Instagram of him on an airplane and there was just like $2 million on there and he's on his phone. Like, they understand that fetishism around money. Hmm. And that fetishism of displaying wealth. But yeah. in, the, in the form of money. Well, here, here's a danger. Because we want money so much and because it plays this outsized role in our minds, I think it's easy to treat it as an end in itself rather than a means to an end. There, there's a Bitcoin connection here. Maybe you remember this moment when Ross Stevens in the Bitcoin for Corporations conference, maybe February 2021 or so, sponsored by Sailor. Ross Stevens at one point says something like, well, nobody actually wants Bitcoin. They want what Bitcoin can get them. And as, as he says that, a thousand plebs on Twitter are like, no, no, I, I do want Bitcoin. And like, you're missing the point. Bitcoin is a means to an end. If it really is money, it's a means to an end. And if we identify or think of it as a, an end in itself, that is a psychologically disastrous place to be. All you'll want is money and all you'll get is money and you will not be happy. So maybe one of the benefits of moving to a Bitcoin world is because it's a digital money, that fetishism goes. Well, I think there are trade-offs because there's something really intuitive about small physical objects. We understand how this solves the double spend problem, right? Mm -hmm. Once I go like that, I can't take it back without fighting you for it. Unless we exchange them. Unless we exchange, which we won't. I'm not doing that again. That's my $20 bill. So we we understand physical money very intuitively very young children understand how material objects work. Object permanence comes, you know, pretty early on in development. It's much harder to understand abstractions. And abstractions 
like deposits in a bank account or a balance on a ledger, these come really late in human history. So I don't think we've evolved the cognitive apparatus to think about it super intuitively. It's sort of weird and new for us in terms of our history. But, but maybe there are benefits yeah. to, to moving away from something so concretely physical. I don't think we actually, I don't think this is well understood. This might be one of those second or third order, third order effects of Bitcoin that we won't know about in advance until they've already happened. Sort of like the mining effects. Nobody could have predicted five years ago that mining could have this uh, role to play in uh, variable load uh, on the grid. Mm and turning methane into uh, much less deleterious gases, monetizing uh, methane burning instead of just uh, putting it up in the atmosphere. Nobody could have predicted that five years ago. So, so I think there's lots of things that we'll just discover. Maybe this is a realm for one of them just to think about and watch is does the abstraction of money and Bitcoin takes that to an extreme because it's only abstract. Do you think about the relationship between money and time uh, and I'll frame with you again uh, I consider I think we have two uh, important scarce items in our life that are personal to us which is the Bitcoin we own and the time we have left mm. now we know how much Bitcoin we own but we never know how much time we have left but as you get older you become more aware of there's a limitation to the time you have your your immortality, and you talked earlier about uh, you know, your young students uh, going to you know, into the world of work and considering how much time and they've got and chasing money. Uh, as I've got older, I've become more protective over my time than my money. Time has become a more important currency for me than money. But I don't know if that is uh, a reflection on the money I have. I'm not rich, but a reflection on the money I have or a reflection on how much time I have left. But time is a, time has become uh, a form of money for me. I think one, one thing you'll do once you realize that time is finite, and we, realize, we all of us realize this sometime or other, some of us later than others. Some of my students haven't realized it yet. Sorry, guys, you will. <laughs> we learn how to spend it better. It's not that we don't spend it. It's that we, we learn to spend it on the things that are precious to us. Maybe a, that lesson applies to Bitcoin too. Once you see how scarce it is, you've really taken in the 21 million cap and you take seriously the possibility that Bitcoin will become a important money. I think the thing to do there isn't just to hold on to it. It's actually to spend it on the things that are most precious to you. So just as you would with your time. You don't just like do nothing once you realize the finitude of time. You spend it carefully. But therefore, it can, it's time money. Well, now we need that glass of wine. <laughs> I want that glass of wine. Anyone going to pour it? Jeremy's on. That, that question is one of these things that's so, it's so abstract and so deep that there, there has to be something right about saying yes. But I don't know if I'm the person to try to unpack that. I think but but you, have any, you have absolute scarcity as the thing they have in common and that it's, it's scarce for all of us. So some resources are more scarce for others than for some. So, so uh, the people who have access to the, the shitcoin printer, shitcoins are not scarce for them. They're scarce for me. 
because I, I don't print shit coins. But money is scarce for all of us. Nobody can print more of it. Time is scarce for, scarce for all oh, of us. Sorry, not money, Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah. And, and time. That both of yeah. them, are, like I say, both are scarce. Both are, to, to me, I, I, consider t- I consider time like money. I've never questioned if it is money right until this moment. I just f- felt like you're the guy I could do it with. But, but I do consider it more like money. I've become more protective of it over mm. time. I've become less uh, tolerant of a waste of my time. I've become a bit more selfish with my time. Like right now, I, every six to eight weeks, me and Danny get on a plane, we go somewhere in the world, and we make 20, 25 interviews. And we're so fortunate to do this. It's like the most amazing life. It's pretty cool. We turn up in the city, Jeremy arrives, we all give each other a big hug, we have a glass of wine, we hang out, and we get to talk to some of them. Like, I'm so lucky I get to talk to people like you and Stephen and have these amazing conversations, and we get to hang out and eat good food. But I also sacrifice something. I sacrifice uh, being at home in my town and with my family, and more recently, being involved in the local community. I now, through the vehicle of football, I support my local community. And I don't even know what day it is. What day is it? It's Sunday. So if it was Monday, tomorrow night, I would be taking my daughter to football training. And when I take her there, there's 100 young girls out there playing football and training. And, and I would be spending time with the coaches, finding out their requirements and their needs and how I can support them because I'm part of that community. And I sacrifice that. Uh, I've made the choice still to come here but there will come a time when I won't want to come here because that's going to become more important because I'm having, I have less of that time. Mm. So I'm considering time like, like money. Like how do I spend it? What is the value exchange I'm getting? So I'm, I, I, I consider time as money or like a money or a money mm-hmm. substitute. Time is hard money, not just any old money. I read something once. And it really stuck with me. Uh, an inch of time is worth an inch of gold, but you cannot buy an inch of time with an inch of gold. And I thought of that very much, I thought of that a lot when, uh, when my mother died. Hmm. Like the time I had with her was priceless because she there was a finite time until she would pass. Literally priceless. Literally You couldn't priceless. pay to extend it. But more importantly, that. So, like, at the time... Yeah, thanks, man. There was a... Yeah, she... Cheers. Cheers. To time. To time. To my mother. So, there were... She lived in Ireland. I lived in the UK. Every time I went to see her, there was a cost. But mm. I would do it because, God, I want to see her as often as I can. So, there was a cost to me. Uh, and that time was, you know, priced in and cost of opportunity cost, but there was no amount of money I could spend. And you can, Steve Jobs, probably the one of the richest guys in the world, he could not buy more time with money. These are deep waters. <laughs> if you reflect a lot on this stuff, it can turn you into a really morose guy or maybe, just maybe, a more wise guy. Uh, I would like to be wiser. That's the first step. So it says this guy who knows nothing about wisdom. <laughs> Come on, man. You, you are obviously, one, wise. Uh, two, have a quality in allowing someone to feel comfortable questioning things. Because I'm instantly, in this scenario, questioning things now. 
I have no idea at the moment if we're making a good show or a terrible show, but I kind of don't care. I'm entirely selfishly enjoying the experience for me. In preparing for the show, I didn't read any articles, but I looked through some old quotations that I sometimes reflect on to like remind me of my business, what it is that I'm here for. And there's one from a poet. I don't remember the name, but I posted, I tweeted it just this morning. And he says that for philosophers, it's the questions that matter. And, and this is the line that stuck out to me. He said, there's like, they're like embers in, in the fire. They just sit there and they burn. And those questions can have consequences later, but, but it's, it's the asking that matters. That's the valuable thing in philosophy. So they burn. Those questions sit in the back of your mind like little embers. What questions are sitting in the back of your mind like little embers? I wonder whether Bitcoiners have, I think about this a lot, overestimated the likelihood of hyper-Bitcoinization and the inevitability of Bitcoin and underestimated the negative costs, those who get left behind. And if you do both of those at the same time, you can make some really deep mistakes, I think, or at least you, you, you set yourself up for certain kinds of failure, intellectual, maybe even moral failure. When you think it's inevitable that this thing will take over and you haven't really thought about who it might leave behind. So that's something that uh, Brad, Craig, and I have thought a lot about. And Brad's kind of like the heart of our operation. He really thinks about that question, mm. uh, who Bitcoin might leave behind, if it is what we think it just might be. My own suspicions, my best guesses are that Bitcoin will not hyper-Bitcoinize. It will not become the dominant money. It'll become unimportant money that sits alongside others. And that is a kind of eternal check against institutional overreach. I think that's the best scenario that I, that I think is, is a, a real possibility given where we are now. So, maybe, that's, maybe that's optimistic. It, yeah. it can be really deeply pessimistic actually to think that Bitcoin can take over if you really think about who that taking over might harm, that is the people who didn't buy early. But you can potentially look at it a different way. It harms people who didn't buy early, but it net, uh, re there's a net reduction in harm in that it ultimately would raise everybody up. So the, the positive externalities, the, the good stuff that Bitcoin creates yeah. outweighs or maybe even compensates the least well-off. I, I think about those questions a lot. We thought about it in the interview with Perianne. Mm. Um, the, the premise of the interview was actually to do with why an ETF has not been approved. So yeah. this is a mind reading of Gary Gensler? I mean, a, a bit of that. I think everyone has come to a, the same conclusion on Gensler and it's not really mind reading, it's pretty obvious, but by the by. Um, why has he not approved a spot ETF? And rather than just question that, we... Danny and I questioned before the interview, or the question we want to put to uh, Perry Ann was, is a spot ETF good for Bitcoin, current Bitcoin holders, or everyone at large? And my fear was, mm. especially when she talked about... It's a good the, distinction. Well, that she talked about the wall of money that would come in, trillions of potential investment. And if that's coming in into the US which already has an outsized position uh, in Bitcoin as, an, you know, as a collective group of people of ownership. I don't know what the, sp the, the split is, but I wouldn't be surprised if 40, 50% of Bitcoin is all held by Americans. If that wall of money 
came into Bitcoin and it raised the price 10, 20 fold, that, uh, that would disproportionately benefit America. Would that make America an even far wealthier nation? What does that do for the little guy? And I don't know the answer. That I, I'm not even the person to answer it, but I questioned it. And I'm not sure. Like a, an ETF would be amazing for me if, it's, you know, if this water money came in. I personally would make a shitload of money. But what weighed on me was, actually, is this good for Bitcoin and humanity at large? And I think I'm signing on the side of I don't want a spot ETF because I'm not sure it's the best outcome for Bitcoin or people yet. I think, I think we still need to get the little guys in. It sounds like integrity to me to care about something more than just NGU, number go up. We yeah. have to. If, if we're going to be more than the laser-eyed cultists they think we are, we have to care about more than just number go up. Yeah, but... But I, but if I only cared about number go up, I, I would You'd be involved be in crypto or something. Yeah, I'd be involved in shit coins, um, and I'm not. Um, but I, that, that's not to say I don't want money, and I'm not attracted to money mm-hmm. or what it provides. You know, the opportunity that it provides myself, my children, the, the, the nice holiday, nice car, these things like that. But ultimately, like, what is the mission here? Like, trying to anchor back to the mission. What is the mission? Um. So I question that. What, what else, what other embers do you have going? I think about what the mission is. Yes. And this is something we've talked about at Bitcoin Policy Institute. To get rich. That's what the cynical onlookers might guess. I think they might be surprised at how little we care or talk about price and how much we care about things other than price and how united we are around a mission. So I was on the phone the other day with Grant talking about this Swan-sponsored opportunity. Thanks again. And we ended on this really upbeat note. And it wasn't because I thought that some research money would be coming to me and my friends. Honestly, maybe none of it will come my way. Maybe uh, the resistance money people will get nothing. That's okay. What was so exciting was that there was something more than just getting rich that brought me and Grant together on that call. It was a mission. It was that we thought we could make the world better. And that is so powerful as uh, just juice to get you up in the morning and to get you on that call and to get you writing. So what is the mission? Is the mission personal? Because Bitcoin's personal, I think. Like if somebody asked me, uh, what is Bitcoin? What is Bitcoin to you? Well, no, I, 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 I said this to Stephen earlier. I start with trying to explain to them what... Uh, what is wrong with fiat? And then when, if inflation comes up, we've, you know, we've pointed out that inflation is a very personal problem because it affects people differently. It benefits some people. There are winners and losers. But Bitcoin to a Nigerian activist is very different to a, uh, to a Pete McCormack in Bedford. It's very different to a Afghani, uh, female Afghani who can't get a bank account. Like, whoever you are, it's completely different, it's completely personal. So what is, what is the mission? I've heard you say on the show what you think the mission is. You think it's the separation of money and state. I, I, would, I would put it a little bit differently. I think it's, it's an eternal check on our institutions. That's kind of a fancy way of saying it's not yeah. just the state. I think we're in this time and place where schools 
and churches and states and corporations and mega corporations and various unholy combinations of any of these things have tremendous power over individuals. And it's these little technologies that occasionally come up that tip the balance of power in a favor back towards the individual. So the printing press is something like that. The, the firearm is something like that. And I think of Bitcoin as being one of those technologies that can really shape maybe even hundreds of years of human history by protecting us from, you know, precious, valuable, important institutions that nonetheless have great capacity to really screw us over when they get too big. Bitcoin takes something important out of all of their hands. It, it breaks the concentration of power. It does. And it, it splits it up. It disintermediates just in the same way that firearms might have done so when they were invented. So it's a democratizing of power. I, I, I hesitate about democratizing because it has so much connection to things like, you know, elections and electoral politics. But if democratizing just means um, putting hands into individual people, yeah. then yes, absolutely. Because power, That's the power, mission. power concentrates. Yes, it tends to over time. And power concentrates with money. So, hmm, so can power concentrate with Bitcoin if Bitcoin concentrates? Of course it could. Sailor could become the most powerful man in the world. Or some unknown whale huh. who's more, in fact, more likely. Roger Ver, for example, at one point had 400,000 Bitcoin. There are other unknown whales that may uh, you know, splash around, that create, uh, they have more than Michael does, that, that, that are unnamed or unknown to most Bitcoiners. Yeah. I, I like what Bitcoin does to incentives. Hmm. It breaks certain incentives. But I think it does it in two ways. I think it breaks incentives with regards to the, uh, the, the money print and press. Within Bitcoin, you've got this like check and balance on uh, institutions, but there's a check and balance within the community. Hmm. Like if I, if I one week have an, an ad read, which is for Cardano, I'm fucked. Like it's the death of the show. I think I would unfollow you. <laughs> and I would ask to please have my $20 bill back, please. I'll be like, that's 30 pounds. <laughs> I said Bitcoin is an eternal check. I should qualify that. I don't think that it's an eternal solution. I think that these things are kind of cyclical and we need new technologies at new places and new times to fight back this inevitable concentration of power. Equilibrium outcomes tend to coalesce around concentrations of power. Not, not always, but th this is a long tendency over human history. And so maybe someday we'll need something that none of us in this room could actually even imagine and think about something even weirder than Bitcoin that will make the internet once again a site of freedom rather than surveillance and control. So yeah, there's this concept from Tolkien, probably my favorite author. He calls this the long defeat. The idea is that you can't defeat evil once. In fact, evil will come back. So there are these moments of triumph in Tolkien, but if you take a long view of his entire history, in fact, Morgoth is defeated, but then Sauron comes. Sauron will be defeated, but then the Nazis will rise. You know, there's, there's always new evils, I'm afraid. It's yeah. the long defeat. Yeah, I mean, we have uh, the evil of China that exists within China, which I, I personally believe is an evil. Uh, we have uh, 
two sides of some people would argue of evil in a war right now. Personally, think one side is more evil than the other. But we have evil rising within uh, the United Kingdom where I live. We have evil. We have evil everywhere. God, where you the know, fuck it, are we it gets even worse than that. The line between good and evil. You know this line from Solzhenitsyn. Yeah. It's not between you and me. The line between good and evil runs straight down each man's heart. Yeah, I mean, God. I mean, these, these battlegrounds are spiritual battlegrounds in a way when each of us makes a choice. Evil runs through all of us. It does. Huh. Does Bitcoin fix this? No, but Bitcoin can be enormously helpful now for certain kinds of evils that we do see. Yeah, there's a lot to think about here. Yeah. Uh, does money create a, a myth of happiness? I think if we use it wrong, yes. Because you know one of the terms I really fucking hate is money, money won't make you happy. Money doesn't make you happy. Because having no money can make you fucking miserable. I think having money is going to be a lot of fucking fun. And I think it's, I think it's a lie. But I think, I think worded better, it has meaning. Like, mm. money doesn't guarantee happiness, I think is a better term. But fun isn't happiness, is it? Maybe it's one element yeah. of happiness. If you think of happiness as just an overall better life, well, a life can be made better by having some fun in it, but a yeah. life that's only fun without meaning is not as good as life with both. But not exactly. You, you might live a very happy life by only having fun. I think you... I have a lot of fun and I'm very happy. Good for you. Because I don't know, does my life have meaning? Does your life have meaning? What's the meaning of your life, Danny? <laughs> I need a joint. <laughs> <laughs> You've kind of got one. <laughs> Why do you get on it? It's upstairs. What's, what is the meaning of your life, Danny? Well, I don't even know how to start answering that question. Separation of money and state. Do you feel like... I, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you've got more. Do you feel like the work we do is what has meaning in your life right now? Yeah, I think it's meaningful work. No, not is it meaningful. Like, is it giving you meaning? Do you think about it? I, don't, I honestly don't really know what that means. Like, do you feel like your life has a purpose with this? Do you feel like you found a purpose with it? Yeah, I think the work has purpose. But I like what, to say, <laughs> does that? No, no, no. You no. switch the question he's again. Avoid, <laughs> he's, do, he's doing it, isn't he? Yeah, but I don't, I honestly don't really know what, what that means. Uh, I think the work is valuable work and it does have meaning. Does it give meaning to my life? I don't know if, I don't know if, I don't know if it does. There's empirical research on a couple of questions that, that's relevant to what we're talking about here. So the big question is, can money buy happiness? Can money buy a good life? And there are various ways of thinking about what happiness actually is, how to measure it. And it turns out that if you're measuring happiness by asking people, do you feel good right now? Basically, money can remove unhappiness. Yeah. And up to a point, it, it makes you happier in that sense by removing unhappiness. But then it levels off and it stops giving you benefits. There's mar diminishing marginal returns. It's like that baseline we talk about, right? Mm. Like being being broke and poor sucks. I've been there. It's fucking shit. Like if yeah. you, and I know right now, especially in the UK, because we made a film about it. There are people right now who are broke and poor, and they're struggling, and it's shit, and they are unhappy. And I think once you can cover those base costs, like base costs are living your rent, your energy, which is a challenge right now for some people. You can buy your, you can go and do your shopping, not really think about your budget. 
you know, have a holiday a year. Beyond that, everything else you need money for is for lumpy things. Hmm. It's a flash car or a big house. Like it's lumpy things. And I don't think that will make you happy. No. There's another way of measuring happiness, which is asking people not, do you feel good right now? But more like, are you satisfied with your life? Oh, don't do that because I'm not. Well, it turns out that money and having more of it is correlated, but it does, it does satisfy at a certain point and, and start to, to uh, have diminishing marginal returns. But the number is higher. So it, it's easier to buy off unhappiness than it is to buy life satisfaction. And we actually don't know at the edges because there aren't enough mega rich people to know just how far money can buy life satisfaction. Yeah. Again, that's possibly personal as well. Yes. And, and one thing that's really difficult to measure here is difference across people versus change in one person's life over time. One of these things that makes money not help us be happy is hedonic adaptation. It's when you get new pleasures and then after you've experienced them for a while, you kind of forget their pleasures. Hmm. The, the human perceptual apparatus, remember, uh, I mentioned this a, a bit ago, it's delta sensitive, it sense, senses change. So the way to have a good life from pleasure is to have more and more and more pleasure, but we know that can't go on forever. Yeah. Increasing amounts and kinds of pleasure. That doesn't actually work. You, you adapt to what you have. Well, as a former drug addict, I, I know exactly. that path. Yes. It, it, it is diminishing returns. It'll kill you. And then, it, yeah, and it becomes a trap. Yes. It goes from uh, a pleasure to a trap. When what you think you're seeking is pleasure, but it turns out you're seeking to hold off displeasure. And that is no way to live. Huh. Yeah. So th this is maybe one of the deeper reasons how or ways that money can trap us is that we think we can get money, we want more of it so that we can exchange for pleasure. But it turns out that you just hedonically ad adapt to new pleasures and they're no longer great to you anymore. What we need are mechanisms to fight back, something to keep us from adapting too quickly to, to actually notice what is good in our lives. And if you don't have that in your life, then you'll always just be seeking more, more, more and never finding it. Now this show is brought to you by Gemini, who are also the lead sponsor of my football club, Real Bedford. Now, I am exclusively using Gemini for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I am only buying. It is a time to buy for me. We're hodlers, right? We're hodling through this. Now, I've been using the Gemini app for buying the dips. They have crushed it with the UX. And with that, I set up my DCA for twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Now, both the app and the website make it really easy for buying and selling Bitcoin. And Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security from day one. And they are running a special offer for listeners of my podcast, What Bitcoin Did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. Next up, it is BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking services for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am a customer of BCB too. Now, they heard about the difficulty I had finding a payment service provider that understands Bitcoin and reached out to me. 
BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in UK and Europe, and they are now expanding globally. And they have this incredible network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now listen, I know, like me, a whole bunch of you had trouble with finding banking service providers. So if you're looking for a bank who understands and supports Bitcoin companies, rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you're going to want to become a BCB customer. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Next up is my new sponsor, Wasabi, who I am now using to make sure I keep my Bitcoin private. Now, with the release of Wasabi 2.0, Bitcoin privacy is now effortless as a wallet has introduced privacy by default. Rather than having to choose to coin join, this can all be done automatically, so you just need to receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can spend freely. All the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement. I remember when I used to use the previous Wasabi, you know, it's a little bit tricky trying to understand how to do a coin join. All that's taken away. It's all done automatically for you. You also get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi, so you never leak your IP address. There's also no minimum denomination, so any amount you receive from CoinJoin is totally private. Now, privacy is something I've been taking more seriously recently, and with Wasabi 2.0, this makes it so easy. So if you want to find out more, please do go and check out wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. Also today, we have my new sponsor, the Texas Blockchain Council. Now, on November the 17th and 18th, the Texas Blockchain Council are putting on the Texas Blockchain Summit in Bitcoin country, Austin, Texas. And now this is a two-day event of thought leadership for Bitcoin. Day one is all that any Texas Bitcoin miner could ask for. Top Bitcoin CEOs and their teams will be hanging out in Austin. And day two with top policy leaders from the US, both federal and state legislators, senators, House of Representatives, CFTC commissioners, what more can you ask for? And I'm not just promoting it here on my podcast. I'm going to be heading to the event in Austin. I'm going to be in Vegas with Danny, but I'm going to be catching a flight over to Austin to see my Texas Bitcoin buddies and interviewing a very important person on stage. So make sure you book your ticket and check out this event. Hopefully I'll see you there. Hopefully we'll get a chance to hang out. Right, if you want to find out more, please head over to texasblockchainsummit.org and use the discount code PETERMC20 for a 20% discount at checkout and let them know that I sent you there. This offer is valid until the end of October, and I hope to see you all down in Austin, Texas. Is there any study of the super rich and happiness? And does does it... Because you... You know, like... You will see super famous people going through a very hard time, and the same typical cliche criticism is like how can they be miserable they're so rich they've got everything they could want and i think it's just such a naive statement with regards to understanding like relativity Hmm. yeah you're not living their life so you see their house their car their lifestyle and you think oh they must be super happy because they've got all that shit that you want for them that's their baseline they've adapted they've adapted they can't change how they feel internally but the, is there any study that too much money can have destructive power against happiness? There is. In fact, now getting 
social scientific research on this is tough because the mega-rich do not submit to happiness monitors. So the way some of these studies work is you wear basically like a little Apple Watch and then you dial in a number as you're, you know, it, it beeps at you once every hour and you put in a, a, a one through 10. Elon Musk is not going to wear this watch. He will not submit to this kind of study. It's too intrusive. So we don't have big data sets to understand and things like that. What we have are anecdotes. Here's one. This is from the introduction to a book by the Dalai Lama. It's called Ethics for a New Millennium. He talks about how he names a bunch of famous people. He's out, you know, I've been in Brad Pitt's house. I've been in so-and-so's house. And you know what I found there? When Everett Delta is at the party, I go to the bathroom, I take some time for myself, and then I rifle through their medicine cabinets. And you know what I find? Drugs. <laughs> Benzos. <laughs> Opioids. These are people that are looking for something. I mean, that's a rude house guest, <laughs> to be fair. <laughs> Dalai Lama takes the piss. <laughs> it's not just in his book. It's in the only part of the book anybody ever reads, which is the introduction. So if Brad Pitt wants to know what the Dalai Lama was doing in the bathroom, it, it was, it's, it's, it's in print. <laughs> so a lot of us are really bad at this. We're bad at exchanging money for happiness. You're just pissed that I said the show wouldn't be funny if I died and you took over. <laughs> Danny's trying to be funny now. Uh, yeah. Or... Is it that they have an easier access to these drugs that they believe can mask problems? Oh, that, that has to be part of it, yeah. too. You know, I sometimes think about this for, I'll say Bitcoiners, but I'm really talking about me, too, like, like the struggles of my own heart. We Bitcoiners anticipate some future moment of getting money. Absolute wealth. This is number go up. This is retirement early. It's, it's those, those kinds of pipe dreams. But it, my, my guess is that if we don't practice and get good at exchanging money for happiness now, we won't be any better at it later. Well, that, this is why and, I'm, I'm... And, and it won't make us happier. And, and what is the point except to be happier and for those you love to be happy? So what's the point of money except to somehow exchange it for something that's of better value? Yeah, this is why I'm not 100% comfortable with the um, the hodl-only mentality. Yeah. Like I say hodl, but I I sometimes wonder whether that is like a collective, that's collective propaganda to force number go up more. When Of course the, it is. Yeah. And I, it's it's kind of scammy too because the people yelling hodl the hardest are those who are secretly selling on the way up. Well, we don't know that. The Celsius... Stuff is out. Yeah, well, we do yeah, know it I sometimes. Mean, Peter, like sometimes we do yes, know yes, it. Yeah, yeah. But um, generally speaking, Celsius yeah. is a, a specific uh, situation. But like, I sell Bitcoin, and I admit it. You know, I bought a car with it, and a house, and bought my son a car, and like, I openly admit and your it. Your dad, right? Yeah, I bought my dad a car, uh, but I didn't. But I, I don't think I bought his with Bitcoin. I bought his with cold hard cash. But like, you know, when I've had those jumps, I've I've spent and raise miles other or other people's lives up or or we give money out to you know projects like we support what Stephen's doing or Peter Todd or whoever we we support things but an HRF I hope HRF uh, I've supported HRF I supported a lot of projects but but the Human Rights Foundation you should give them some of your bitcoin you should definitely give some of your bitcoin um I we don't talk, Danny we don't talk much about these days in terms of the next bull run, we're going to be 
fabulously wealthy. We talk about the next ball run in terms of the freedom that it gives us for this show. Mm. This show is... It's healthy. Yeah. So... I'm glad for you. Like that, that, that you're not thinking of your next Aston Martin because you don't need another one. No. I mean... It's a Lambert next. Yeah. Nobody needs three Aston Martins. <laughs> I haven't got two Aston Martins. But this show is not really a Bitcoin show anymore. It's called What Bitcoin Did, and we talk about Bitcoin a lot. But strictly speaking, today's show is not a Bitcoin show. This is a uh, philosophy of money show. And the show we just made with Stephen was a show about uh, misincentives with fiat money. It's not a Bitcoin show. And we made a show, I mean, the majority of the show we made with uh, Perian, we were discussing libertarianism and the health system. Uh, it's, it's becoming more about the asymmetric topics. Mm. There is a creative uh, desire to move on from Bitcoin because I prefer personal stories anyway. So there's a creative desire. But there's also a... Everybody prefers personal stories. Yeah, I do. I mean, human beings care about human beings. Yeah. I, like, of course. We, we set up to do the show with Perianne about ETFs. For the first hour, we didn't discuss them. And for the last 40 minutes we did, I was bored. But when we were talking about her and her background and... You know, why she was drawn to libertarianism. I, I enjoyed that. Um, but there is also a like a reality that the the word uh, Bitcoin can can cause an inertia to some people. And I feel like if there wasn't Bitcoin in the title, and it was just a background topic, like for example, the best way I can say it, Joe Rogan makes a show with a range of topics. Right? He doesn't make a uh, show about MMA and jiu-jitsu. But just by listening to a show over and over again, these little bits that come in, I'm now kind of interested in it. I mm. watch a little bit and I'm, I actually found out in the little school that's five houses down from where I live, they have a jiu-jitsu class twice a week. And I was like, huh, I might go and try that out. But, but if he'd have made a jiu-jitsu show, I never would have listened to that. I don't give a fuck about jiu-jitsu. And so I think about the show, if I want Bitcoin to be a success, am I just making a show for Bitcoin as already exists. And then every four years, there's like a bunch of people who realize, shit, I need to learn about Bitcoin. Number goes up and they go into Spotify, they search for Bitcoin, they find my show or their friends tell them to listen to it. But then I just preach into the choir. Would it be a more successful Bitcoin show if it wasn't a Bitcoin show? Well, you've answered that question a while ago when we, you started ranging more widely. Yeah. Yeah. So we know we want to do that. So the big question is, can we... And I questioned this to Willie Wu and other people and... And the only reason we have not made that leap right now is there is a, it's a gamble and it's a financial gamble. You know, the show is secure. You got guys to pay for. Got guys to pay for. Uh, you got stuff to pay for. Got stuff to pay for. But I also said that, I asked the question about this earlier without you realizing it. It's like, uh, the, the risk isn't just to the people on the show. The risk is to personal status and standard mm. of living. If it doesn't work, I may have to downsize house. I may not be able to afford the life I had before. But I know what I want to do, and I, I, that's therefore I'm trapped. I'm economically trapped doing this. Like if, if the, going back to the idea, if the next ball run comes and I had a 5x of my net wealth, we definitely go and change the show. We do, don't we? We know we do. Because it's... Because we know that's, that's our mission, where we want to go is 
spread this knowledge to as many people as possible. And we think there's a different way. You're in a position to give people a gift. You can give them the gift of thinking, a, a time and a place to just ask questions. You know, how do we, we've talked about these psychological forces that are kind of at war with us. They're not to our benefit. One of the tools we have to fight back is thinking, is noticing. The simple act of reflecting and just noticing how you feel, noticing what money is doing to you, noticing how you think about Bitcoin, how often you check the price. And these things are prompted by questions. So you're in a position to, to raise questions that could help us notice, that could help us think. I think money makes me a better person. It doesn't make everybody a better person. No, I know that. I, I just know, I think for it's me... It's just leverage. I mean, it, just, it just extends what you already have. I th yeah. I, I, I think it makes me more generous. No, it doesn't make me more generous. It makes me... I'm the same generous, but the amount I give away is more. The like, total amount. The impact of your generosity is expanded. Yeah. And I think... I think money allows me to... Ah, oh, but that maybe that means I'm not a good person. Ha. Huh. Because money allows me then to focus on the things I want to do. But I, I'm only doing that because I've got financial freedom. Whereas if I had a pair of bollocks, I'd just do it anyway. So maybe I'm, maybe I'm a piece of shit. Maybe, maybe I'm putting money before my own happiness and what I want to do. No, I am. Huh. How much is enough money? We talked about how... 21. 21. <laughs> No, I'm greedy. We talked before about how the, the happiness effects of money taper off as you get up. There's a magic number that some people cite, which is about 75,000 US per person, per year. household, per year. So that's income. Wait until that, they get there. That's right. Well, well, here's the thing. You ask how much is enough? There's a one word joke answer that everybody knows. More. 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 It's a joke but it actually expresses something deep and maybe pathological. Because if that really is your answer, and for many of us, it is, then you'll never be happy. So, so I think the answer isn't $75,000 a year per person in your household, nor is it more. It's more like, well, how much do you want to be enough? Maybe aim at that, but then you need to set yourself up so that you can stop. You need to set yourself up so that you won't be grabbing for more and more and more on the hedonic treadmill, always adapting and never happy anymore. Is there ethical and unethical ways to spend money? Of course, of course the answer in one sense has to be yes. Like you can pay somebody to assassinate somebody and that's bad. But what if, what if you're assassinating, killing baby, you, you, baby Hitler? You can pay somebody to assassinate an innocent person and that's bad. Yes. One thing that this question highlights is that there are interesting moral and social taboos around money that don't always make sense when you examine them. Let me give you an example, and maybe you can think of one, Peter. Here's something that I give students a lot. Quite regularly, I'll see a student who really wants to think about something, and so I'll just give them a book about that thing. And then I will rebuy the book from my own personal library. So I just give them a copy. Happens all the time. This is sort of part of the job. I basically budget for it, to give away books all the time. How many books do you give away a year? Maybe one per month, so nine teaching months out of the year, so nine, nine books per year. Okay. Uh, so maybe all the time is an exaggeration, but you know, this, this happens, it's not at all unusual for me. 
and it goes over fine. Now imagine that if instead of giving a book to a student, I had handed them money, even money of equal value. To go buy the book. Yeah. That would be weird. There's a kind of social taboo about that. You're like, wait a minute. Profs don't give students money. What is this creep after? Huh. Think about what gifts you might have bought for your mother. Would you have given her money or a gift? Could you have given her the equal value in money or a gift? Which would, which, which would be kind of a weird thing and maybe a cold, inhuman yeah. thing to do versus the right thing. <laughs> I always give my sister money for her birthday because I always forget it. <laughs> and she's always glad I give her money. <laughs> because I always give her more money than I would have spent on the present well, to well, make up for go. the fact that I didn't get something. I'm sorry, Lorraine. <laughs> These social rules don't always bind us. I know, Obviously, I know, they're exceptions. But there are a lot of things, there are a lot of times and places and contexts where it's totally inappropriate. Here's one more example. Somebody who I thought was a friend of mine asked me a bit ago if I could read one of his papers and give comments on it. And of course, I was about ready to say yes. And then he said, I'll pay you. And I just thought, well, dude, I thought we were friends. His offer to pay me, actually, it separated us. It's like we weren't friends anymore. That sounds like the start of mine and Danny's relationship. <laughs> and mine and Jeremy's. And we're still our friends. What did Peter offer you money to do, Danny? That's not what happened. <laughs> That's, it's the opposite. Go on. Well, I reached out to Peter years ago saying, I think I can help with the podcast. And I offered to do the first couple of shows for free, see if you want, want me to carry on. And straight away, he just said, no, I'll, I'll just pay you for the work. Because I didn't want to see his, I didn't want to see his unpaid work. I didn't want to see that. I wanted to see what his paid work was. And I wanted him to know that I value paying hmm. for work. Same with Jeremy. Jeremy offered the same. It changed your relationship, though. Yeah. When, when you bring money, it just it changes the way we relate to each other. So Marxists talk a lot about this. They say that money alienates us from other people. I think there's something right and something wrong about that. Here's, yeah, here's what's I, right. I, yeah. It, like the, it I, has this. I think as uh, I think people immediately would want to disagree with that because they don't want to agree with a Marxist idea. But no, I think they're right. I mean, it, you know, we have class structures which are based around money that create separation. Yeah, it's alienation is the, the fancy Marxist word for that. Here's where I think Marx and those who follow him have made a mistake. They failed to notice the ways that money brings us together. I, I took an Uber ride here. I gave the guy money. He gave me a ride. It brought us together. We had a fun conversation. And then we both got something we wanted out of that relationship that we couldn't have gotten without a medium of exchange between us. It's this, this great social technology to enable us to relate to each other. And actually... If loving someone is doing something that's good for them and being with them, there was a kind of love that was exchanged because I did something that was good for him. I gave him money and then he did something that was good for me and we spent time together. We interacted. Yeah. The, the, so, so the paying, sum of the parts somebody, was more. The, yeah. It wasn't just the trade you got, because you got the conversation. The sum of the parts was more as well. But even if there hadn't been a conversation, there's a kind of love that's exchanged. It's meeting each other's needs. So Marxists often miss that. They think only about the alienation bit and they miss that money as social technology actually enables us to help to meet the needs of people that we have no knowledge of and couldn't possibly have knowledge of. We maybe can't, even can't speak their language. And yet you could offer something of value in exchange for something of value and we would understand each other and actually do each other a solid. Hmm. So uh, you asked uh, unethical uses of money, of course there are. 
there's also taboos. And, and that is so interesting because it tells us that money is weird. It tells us the fact that there are these taboos is just further evidence of money's weirdness. And uh, I'll just say this, uh, plugging myself and my, my, my work, uh, it's, it tells us that the philosophy of money is a real subject that we should be thinking about. Taboos are, are excellent evidence of that. How much time in, in teaching do you cover Marxism, Marxist ideas, communism? Not much. Do, do you have many students who spend time questioning it themselves and come to you? And Of course. In another part of the college that I haven't taught in, it's called Modern Social Thought. It's this, this class that every sophomore in my college takes. They read portions of Das Kapital. And uh, what, what they often come out of that with is this sense, and I believe it's correct, that something's wrong. Something's wrong in the post-industrial age, the way we relate to each other. There's deep alienation. Oh, yeah. And there's something effed up about the money. And I just think Marx totally misdiagnosed what that was and totally misunderstood how prices work. You know, economists now have a much better sense of how prices actually happen in markets. It's not that something was super costly to produce. That's the labor theory value. Therefore, it's valuable. No, it's because it was valuable to someone else. It's when supply and demand meet that something is precious and that somebody will give up something of value for it. That takes both supply and demand, and that, that's neoclassical economists or economics post, post-Marx. So, so Marx made many, many mistakes, but there, there's something so right about that. I think we should stop and think about the, the taboos around money and, and just what it does to us and how we relate to each other. What did, what did Marx get right? Is there anything that should be taught or should be debated that you think he, he did get right that is missed because some people are so fearful? Well, I think ideas? he's right that if you offer somebody that you're intimate with, close to in some way, money, you've made a bad faux pas. He thought it was basically wrong in all cases to use money, uh, at least the early Marx. So this is before Das Kapital. He, he published this little piece basically arguing that. So I don't think that's quite right. But maybe there, there's another way to put it. It's uh, when you're close to someone, don't use money. And, and there's actually a difference in signal. So think about what you've conveyed or signaled when you give a gift. You've told someone that you know them because you bought something that they wanted. You've displayed through your actions, not through your words, through your actions, that you understood them, that you got them what they wanted, something that not everybody knows. And that's the difference between giving them money and giving a gift. So, of course, Marx is right that sometimes we should give gifts rather than money. Now, he thought, the earlier Marx at least, thought that we should only have barter and there shouldn't really be capital formation, privately owned. All that's hogwash, in my opinion. But there's a kernel of truth there. If you want to show someone you love them with material stuff, know them and then give them what they want. And, and money won't send that signal. They won't feel loved. When they'll feel loved is when you give something that maybe they want and maybe they didn't even know that they want. Now, that's, that's the deep signal of love when someone gives you something that you didn't even know you wanted and then you realize this is exactly the right thing for me. And, and money, <laughs> money won't be it most of the time. Uh, and that goes back to time because sometimes giving people time, especially as a parent, like there is n- no child wants to hear oh, but I'm working so hard to give you this life, every child. Even if it's true. Even if it is true. They don't give a fuck. They want time. Read to your kids. Read to your kids. Go and watch them play sports. That's where time is also money. 
for yes. me. Well, you're giving something non-fungible there when you give your time. Money, at least good money, is fungible. $100 bill is as good as any other. Not so your time. Although right now my son would be like, fuck off, Dad, give me 500 pounds. <laughs> He'll change his tune. <laughs> no, no he, would. he listens to this. I wonder if he's listening to this show. If you listen to this show, hello, Connor, I love you, man. Um, okay, we haven't even spent any time on markets. What is the role of markets? Well, markets are where we meet. That's where the supply and demand come together and where price is set. It's super abstract, but that, that's, that's, where, that's where we perform this, this loving dance of money exchange. That's where uh, you give up something of value to get something of value. You wanted to know not just what do markets do. You, there's something else in your mind. What is it? Um, no, no, no. Let's, let's go there. Let's, I'll come to where I'm going. Well, well, here's... What is the role of markets? Because well, here, here's something that money does that's obvious. It's a medium of exchange. Here's something that is maybe less obvious, but still true. Money is also a medium of revelation. That is, it's in how we spend our money that we show who we are. This, by the way, is why financial privacy is so important. Because the way you spend your money says what you value. It says who you really are, not who you say you are, but who you really are. So when you buy hormones or diapers or political traps or religious icons, you can go through the list. This says what you're actually willing to give up something of value for. So, and markets are where that happens. So the market and, and money is the medium of revelation in a market. It's how we show ourselves to the world, yeah. not just through what we say, but what we do. And, and of course, there's an abstract yeah. way of thinking about that. Oh, it's prices. It's when demand and supply meet. We had a wine. Danny drank the rest. Damn, we need more wine. Let's be whiskey next. We'll work on that later. Yeah. Markets are where we show who we are. How, how, how do markets get distorted? What breaks markets? So lack of privacy will break markets. You would have a more free and honest market if you have financial privacy. So, uh, I'm not. I'm not so sure about that. But I, well, look, so for example, what's, what's the thought there? Okay, so um, a before, prior to the internet, uh, if you wanted to buy a sex toy, you would have to go to a sex shop, and maybe some people I don't want to walk into that sex shop because someone might see me going in there. I have to face the the person selling the sex toys, and I'm too embarrassed, but you can buy sex toys online. I'm pretty sure that's changed the market mm. because that person has a certain amount of privacy. Yes, uh, you know, the Kindle did this. You can read books on the Kindle without anybody knowing what it is you're reading, and that changed people's reading, not just their reading, but their buying patterns. So I actually, I bought, bought this book. I think it was called How to Be a Woman. I never would have bought this book because if I'm carrying that around, you know the kinds of questions that will run through somebody's head. But I bought it and I read it and it was fun on my Kindle. On your Kindle? Nobody else knew what it was. I mean, Amazon knew, but the people around me sitting by the poolside wouldn't know what I was reading. So private markets are more... Maybe more revelatory. Yeah, or more real. Yeah. They're, they're a place where we even more so show who we really are through what we're willing to give up. Can we talk about wealth and equality? And equality. Because I think as students... Uh, I think the younger you are, the more you think about, you have a naive, naive approach to equality. Like if I sat down with my daughter and I said to her, uh, do you think we should 
tax the rich higher to give a more equal life to the poor, she's definitely going to say yes. 100% she's going to say yes. And I think most of her friends would. Hmm. And I think as you get older, if you understand the redistribution of income and how that skews things and changes incentives, you realize that isn't the answer. Although I'm not, I am still somebody who has, uh, I'm not an anarchist. I, I, a statist cuck, I believe is the yeah. technical term <laughs> well, for I've, what you are. I've tried to get away from making that claim. Because, oh, sorry. Well, no, because I, 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 it's tongue in cheek, right? Yeah, but it's also, I, th I think it's also, it's not, it's not a fair way to describe myself. Mm. I, it's just the conclusions I've come to. The conclusions I've come to is that I, not the current form of democracy. Um, I like democracy. Uh, sadly, it's fucked at the moment. Um, but I prefer a smaller state. But I don't mind the state. I don't mind taxation. I think it's too high. I don't mind taxation and, and ideas that sport economic opportunity for people in a more difficult situation. And I, I'm glad we have universal healthcare. Uh, we get beat down continually for that, but, but they're the things I believe in. But why is it that some people are more happy than others to pay tax to create a more opportunity for others and there are others who are opposed to it? Is it down to money or is it down to political ideology? Or is it both? I think there's something that all of us see and perceive to be morally disquieting and we differ in how we interpret it. So here's, let me just give, give you a picture and I, I think you could, you could see something went wrong here. So let's say there's a slum next door to a palace with a Bugatti, several Bugattis. When you look at a picture like that and, and this exists in the real world, I think if, you're, if your heart is real, if it's beating and with, with blood and you're a human, you'll think something is wrong there, something went wrong. So here's one popular diagnosis of what went wrong. Oh, it's wealth inequality. It's the difference to what is what went wrong. And so we need to fix it somehow, whether with markets or with force. Those are our options, you know, with, with force or without. I actually take a different view myself for what went wrong. I don't think it's the difference between these two stacks that is morally problematic. I think it's the fact that one stack isn't high enough. So one of these is an absolute measure. It's having enough. And do we all have enough versus do some of us have too high a ratio relative to others? And obsessing about that relative question can both distract us from what's morally important, which is that everyone have enough, and also send us into kind of wild goose chases of leveling down where we try to make the world better by making some people worse off, by taking away. Yeah. It's, in my view, a deep moral yeah. mistake, but it's so tempting because if you have a heart and you look at that kind of picture, you will feel something, I think. If you heard it mm, in the background, that's Stephen Lubka agreeing. And he wants to say, come, come get it on the mic so, right. so we actually get it. Because uh, do you want mine or do you want yeah. It's going to have to go pretty high. It's like hey, if, if everyone in the world was a millionaire, like a real millionaire, who cares if one guy's a trillionaire? Like barring some fantastic abuse of power, right? Like as long as everyone has enough, like the, the problem is poverty, not the range between the lowest and highest. So I completely agree with that. This, this is why it's, uh, this, is, this is a problem with politics as well. 
uh, with uh, someone like an AOC, who, by the way, there's, I think there's some interesting things about her. Uh, I, I like AOC. I, I often disagree with her, but she's I think a she's singular naive. talent. Yeah, I think, she's, I think she's naive in her understanding of uh, economics. Um, but I also think she has a way to appeal to people. But I think Obviously, she's, yeah, yeah I, have, I have issues with her. But like uh, a massive own goal is where she goes to the Met, the Met Gala and wears a dress that says tax the rich was just naive and stupid and, and uh, it's, it's the wrong problem to focus on. And it's any of these like blame the billionaires, you know, like that is an excuse. That is creating a scapegoat for a problem that isn't the problem. We have, we have this massive issue in the UK at the moment whereby the country is getting wealthy, wealthier in nominal terms, but the bottom of society is getting poorer. We, I talked about this film we made. We went to this place called Terminus House in Harlow's, deprived town in England. They've turned an office block, a disused office block, into housing because there's a problem with social housing. We never ha- used to have such a big problem with social housing, but we do because the poor in the society got poorer and the jobs they have access to are zero-hour logistics contract jobs, the logistics jobs at a place like Amazon warehouses. And what we've done is we've created a, we've created a favela in the UK. We've created a ghetto. We've, we've created a fucking shit terrible place for people to live. We have, as a wealthy nation, we have pushed the poorest down further. And in situations like that, you can easily see how people blame they want to blame the rich or mm. politicians will use that as a scapegoat but the problem isn't the rich that isn't the problem the problem is is the wealth divide we have created through the distortion of markets and the warping of money has concentrated the wealth in fewer and fewer hands but it's not the rich is fault for that it's this the system we've created we haven't created a way to raise these people up raise up the baseline we've pushed them down and that bothers me it should and this is different than i think the vibe you might get from some bitcoiners there's a kind of libertarian shitlord on twitter <laughs> who might say you know fuck the poor I don't, I don't think they would say that. I think, I, I, I think they, there are some people who think that if this outcome is a result of markets, so be it, let the dice fall where they may, and that there's nothing morally problematic about seeing someone suffer or not have enough. And I think it's important to highlight that you can care about everyone having enough I'm not without, sure. without wanting to, or without thinking that the problem is the ratio or that redistributive taxes are the only solution. But I, I, you know, I, I don't think that's... I, I think anyone who feels like that is an outlier and a psycho, and I don't think there are many who think like that. I think, I think what the libertarians that you're referring to would think is that we have made it perhaps too easy for some people to not work and to live off the state and they've been conditioned into that expectation, hmm. and we need to remove that so people have the incentive to become productive. Uh, so I would challenge what you said there because uh, I spent a lot of time with Bitcoin libertarians, and I don't think that's what they believe. There would maybe be some people, but they're outliers and psychopaths. 
I think. I Let th- us set them aside then. Yeah, I think I, the, I I believe the libertarian friends I have in I've met and spent time in the Bitcoin actually are good people, and they think the the fiat system with with uh, too much. Um, Collectivism is the problem, and you need to mm. break that to raise up the opportunity for others with the right incentives. Because incentives matter. That's I would challenge you on that. Challenge accepted. <laughs> I'm not going to fight back. I think you're right as a matter of generalizations. There's one important distinction when thinking about distributive justice. So distributive justice is is the distribution of goods just. So you know you've got ten bitcoins. I've got three. Danny has seven. Is this a just distribution? It's the same. You come to the similar answer to how much is enough. Well, actually, what a great idea. Let's circle back to that because I, I think there's a connection to what we were talking about earlier. There, there's two big approaches to distributive justice. There's what are called patterned approaches. So the idea here is that you can take a snapshot in time and look at the pattern and then tell whether it's just or not. And then there's competing historical accounts which say, wait a minute, you need to know how the pattern got there before you can know whether it's good or bad. And I think there's a really important insight in that second historical account that's often missed. We don't know what is wrong with the situation when we see, you know, one guy has too little, the other guy has a lot, until we know how they got there. And this is where Bitcoiners could maybe press, because Bitcoiners know something about how we got where we are and what happened to the money, what happened in 1971. And that's a historical question, not a question about who has what at a particular moment of time. It's not a snapshot question. It's about mechanism. It's about what created this in the first place. As far as that sufficiency question, the view that I've proposed, and it sounds like you're friendly to it, so I recommend it to you, it's called the sufficiency view instead of egalitarianism. So egalitarians think that equality is intrinsically valuable, that it's, a, it's as, as such, as an end in itself, it's good for people to be equal in some respect. The sufficiency view says, no, what's good in itself is for everyone to have enough. Anyways, this connects to what we were saying earlier about the, this thesis that maybe for each of us, there is some amount that is enough, after which we should cease striving and start spending and start exchanging money for happiness. What that is for you, I think, will vary across space and time and person. And as productivity increases, the enoughness, the amount that we can reasonably expect to be enough, I, I think will rise. And we're lucky enough that we live in a world where that's true. Those who live under, you know, for uh, two nineteen ninety dollars per day in 1990, I don't know, it was billions. Now it's significantly less than a billion. The, the number of people who have enough is, is slowly rising. The world's actually getting better. But if all you focus on is the ratio of the haves to the have-nots, you might miss this really important fact that actually our, our, our world's getting better. Yes, yeah. So there, there's an optimistic spin on this. Having, having said that, it doesn't follow that everyone has enough and that our world is perfect because neither of those things are true. Is inheritance fair? I stand to inherit nothing from my parents. So is uh, uh, there's a question of yeah. bags here. Yeah, of course. Of course. People with wealthy parents might have strong reason to give a very different answer than me. I, I kind of think I have that, to consider my children's inheritance. Could I distinguish two questions? Yeah. There's the question of whether we should stop people from giving money, especially lots of it, to their children. 
And there's the question of whether we individually should give lots of money to our children. So morally, a lot of people say, no, you shouldn't stop that because it's, uh, that's theft. And that's their family's money and they should do what the fuck they want with it. And they're absolutely right in certain ways. But is it fair? Because I think, I think we're, we are afforded a chronological and geographic luck in life. So I had, a, I had a geographical luck in, in being born in the UK and I had a chronological luck in being born before the, the invention of Bitcoin. So I, I had some yeah. luck. But I, was, I was born to a family that had a house loaded with books. We were otherwise poor, but we had books. That was luck. You didn't have a PlayStation. That sucks, man. My friend Chris had a Super <laughs> Nintendo. Chris fucking cool. Yeah. I used to go around Chris's house. Yeah. Fuck your books. <laughs> no, I'm only joking. No, I get that. I, I, I fully understand that. There's a great line from another movie, About Time, which is not a great movie, but has like a special about place for me. About Time is a great movie. Okay. What the fuck are you on about? That film I think is it's incredible. A really, I think it's special, though technically flawed. I've been to that restaurant. Uh, oh, the, 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 the one in the dark. Yeah, the one in the dark. I'll tell you a funny story about that. I, I would, do you know, have you seen this film? No, I've never We should watch it. that tonight. So Rachel McAdams, and who's the guy? Oh, you'll know him. Oh, God, Redhead. I'm so bad with names. It's, he's the guy in Star Wars who plays the bad guy, the English guy, you know. But then it's, it's got a... in a Black Mirror episode too. Yes, he's in the first, is he in the first episode? First, of, first series. Nice. Bill Nye, no, Bill Nye's the he, dad. He, oh, okay. No, no, I think he's in the, it's the very first, the first episode of Black Mirror is the politician having sex with the pig. The yeah. pig, yeah. He's episode two of Black Mirror. I thought that was Waldo. Dom Noel Gleeson. Mm. Yeah, he's Freddie Gleeson's son. Oh, we didn't know that. Yeah. Huh, interesting. So uh, about time we should watch after this. It's charming. It, but Great soundtrack too. But there's a restaurant, Le Don's Noir. And they've got about five of them in the world. There's one in Paris. There's one in London. There's, I think there's one in Vegas. Uh, you eat in the dark, pitch black dark. When you say dark, it's not like the dark when you go to bed and you can kind of make out the edge of the curtains. You can't see shit. Mm. It's as black as you can get. All the staff are blind. Okay, so all the staff are blind. And so there's two things that happen. Firstly, the staff, because they're blind, they're used to navigating without sight. So they know everywhere they're going. It's perfect. They, they know. The thesis about the restaurant is when you, when you cannot see the food, it raises your taste sensation. So you taste the food differently. That's very cool. It's true. It's cool. And it's true. Hmm. Uh, you end up eating with your hands because if you're trying to use a knife and fork, <laughs> you just can't do it. Uh, so two things happened that night. Firstly, uh, like a dick, I got my vape out and tried to have a vape and I lit the room up. So that didn't go down well. And then secondly, that you have to try and go to the bathroom at some points. And they, they don't guide you to the bathroom. They, they tell you where it is. You have to find your way. And I walked straight oh, into somebody. Oh, that's dangerous somebody. Yeah. for them. I walked straight into somebody. But it's a great experience. Uh, I went with my friend Martina. And we had, it was a brilliant experience. That's a, that's a sorry, I've deviated just because I went to London somewhere. So, sorry. I do this. Talk about that film. That's our third or fourth, fourth film reference. Good, yeah. good. The line that I was going to bring up, it's, it's something like this. Give your kids enough so that they, they can do anything, not so that they can do nothing. Yes. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. 
And if enough of us paid attention to that wisdom, we would have to worry less about inheritance taxes and fairness. Did I hear right that Bill Gates is only leaving like a million to his children? Good for him. I hope he does something good with the rest. I, I have no well, he confidence had, that he will. But I know a lot of, I he's he unpopular with a lot of people because he's, try, he's trying to engineer food and do a lot of weird shit, and I get that. But he, also, he has also done a lot of good with his money. He's essentially eradicated. Yes. Is it polio he's eradicated from the world? Well, he's working on malaria. Yeah, but was it, is it polio he's eradicated from the world? Like, he has done good things. I believe that was Jonas Salk. What is, what is it that he worked on? I know the malaria, that he's working on malaria. But no, but he's worked on something else. I'm sure it's... Toilets. Toilets and clean water. He's I'm big I'm sure on. it's... Po- Can you look up Bill Gates and polio? Because I'm sure that it was, it's down to the point that it was like in one location. I mean, Gates Foundation funds new polio vaccine. Yeah, can you look up uh, Gates' children inheritance? What you said rings a bell. That yeah. He intends to give very little comparatively. Melinda Gates may be angling to change kids' 10 million inheritance. 10 million, split. okay. To what, more or less? I mean, I'd guess more, but I don't know. Um, because even at 10 million, for like a guy who's worth 100 billion or whatever it is, to say, here's 10 million, because that is... Bill Gates has described it as minuscule. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking wanker. But that is enough to do anything... But it'd be, I mean, you could do nothing, but I'm assuming the lifestyle they've lived, if they got 10 million, they'd probably get spent half of that on the house. They'll have to do something at some point. Mm. But it perhaps gives Good them Bill. Th- in, enough, I was going to say capital, but Stephen, look at me, uh, enough capital to go and do something that maybe they want to do or something. Because I think, I think the more money you have, the more time you can focus on altruistic things, which is not a bad thing. Of course not. I've obviously loved this interview. It shows how much Danny uh, enjoys me. And the, it's, anyone it's who's listened here. all the way through, if you've enjoyed it, I'm glad. And if you haven't, I'm sorry. But it, It's really special for me to be here, Peter, because you've been a voice in my ear for years. So it's kind of fun to be a voice in yours now. Yeah, I'm a voice in my own ear. <laughs> uh, um, I want to end in a really good way, but I know we're going to do this again. I feel like I want to organize... A resistance money retreat. You know, I was going to say, if we want to end, I want to end by talking about my dudes. Well, do that, but I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm still going to have questions. You talk about your dudes. But I think we should organize, a, like one of our sprints should be a res- resistant money sprint. We should get everyone together. I, would like, I like the idea of re-interviewing everyone, including Bradley, because we need, do need to get Bradley on. But I do like the idea of getting you lot around a table with microphones and me, it's just saying, fuck all. Well, trying to. That would be hard. And Troy, honorary member and sometimes co-author with yeah. me. And just seeing what comes out of that kind of session, because I think that would be super interesting. But, like, the philosophy discussions are my favorite. I don't care about UTXOs anymore. Like, I just, I'm bored of that. I, I care about the more deeper, meaningful conversations. And I would like to, I think we should all go to Wyoming and a great place to get steak. And we should all hang out, and we should make a bunch of shows. We can make we, we can make like Brad, Brad shows. is a smoker, and he's getting better and better at it. <laughs> he can make us some good stuff. Challenge accepted. Uh, but I think we should organize that. We've been talking about going to Wyoming. Yeah, uh, we could get Caitlin along while we're there. We could get uh, Tyler Lindholm out. We could go shoot an elk. Maybe we can shoot an elk and eat that. We'll have to challenge ourselves in killing an animal. Uh, okay, you talk about your dudes. No, you should finish on your dudes. I want to finish on a question, and then want you to talk about your dudes. What is the most important question we can ask ourselves right now? 
And if you can't answer that because it's personal, what is the most important question you're asking yourself right now? It's something we've touched on. And it's not about Bitcoin, it's about time. It's what to do with the time we have left. I'm a young father myself. You're not I, that I, young. <laughs> my daughter is three. <laughs> yeah, but you're not. I have how, one. How old are you? 38. Oh, you're a baby. Okay, you're, the, you're the a time, father of The time child. I have with her is so scarce. And it, it's impressed upon me every time I'm away when I come back to see how she's changed. Isn't it amazing? One of the amazing things about having a, a young child is you can go away for a week and you come back and they look different. And you're like, shit. It doesn't happen so much as they get older. But when they're little, they've really changed quickly. I, I remember I'd be away for a week and I'd come back like, you look entirely different. Like, I can you sure it's the same baby? <sighs> <laughs> we'll talk about that later. <laughs> no, no, they just, they can look into, you'll experience this job, but you know, at some point, Danny, you will, you will um, spread your seed and make a child and, and you'll go away with me for two weeks. You'll come back and you'll be like, this is an entirely different child. It, it is amazing. Hmm. Okay. Time is precious. Yes. It's more. Ha having a kid has made me see that acutely. Uh, over time, time becomes more important than money. Like if you've got a week to live, that time is infinitely more valuable than money. But like when you're 20, 21, and you leave and use university, money is more important than time. It flips at some point. I think I'm on that like line where they're the same, they're equal. Mm. And that's every question I put myself is how am I using my time? And I, I prioritize money sometimes more, but sometimes I prioritize time more. But I think that's a journey a lot of us go. I think maybe some people don't do it and they make a mistake and they have, that's why they have the regrets. I don't want to regret a misuse of time. You can't take it back. That's a chain that you can't roll back. So that's what I think about. All right. And that has all sorts of consequences for everything else as right. we've discussed you talk about your dudes and then we're gonna get some money get some money <laughs> <laughs> fuck what did i just do we're gonna get some food food is my fuck i fucked up there don't i uh well, then we're gonna get some food i can't say it. i want to say money let's eat the money let's get rid of some money let's get some let's spend some eat money. the rich let's eat the rich <sighs> all right talk about your dudes talk about your work uh spend as much time as you want on it I think a lot of Bitcoiners fantasize about citadels and, and that really represents for us separation from other people. Yeah, I hate the citadel idea. Fucking hate it. Yeah. My heart's desire has never been to be separate from people. It's to be connected to them. And my dudes are my Bitcoiners that I'm connected with. It's Brad Rettler, who you should follow on Twitter. Rettler yes. B. Craig Warmke. Craig Warmke on Twitter. And Troy Cross. And I, I work especially with the first two. And... Working with them, talking about Bitcoin with them almost literally every day for the last couple of years, it just means everything to me. So I just want to tell them that. I've got this kind of pet theory for how we work as a group. There are these views coming from Plato about how humanity has three parts. There's the head, the heart, the hands. There's the, the rational part, the, the feeling part, and the active part. And I kind of think we've, we've found this specialization with the three of us where Craig is, is the head. In, in many ways, he's the guy who has thought the most deeply about Bitcoin, especially in technical matters. And Brad is the heart. He's got a heart for the least well-off. 
and for how Bitcoin can be a powerful tool for those who need it the most. In many ways, I'm the hands. I'm the producer who makes sure that shit gets executed to make sure that, that, we, that our collaborations actually happen and the lead writer in many occasions and like the guy fiddling the knobs, even if the idea wasn't mine. And I play that role with Troy as well. I think Jab, Jabbing him to get him to write that white paper with me and then needling it and, and turning the knobs like, like a producer to, to get something out there. I think Troy is the wings. The wings. It makes it fly. Yeah. Because I've seen how he's flown since the show I did. Oh, it's him. amazing. Yeah, he's incredible. He's, and I see what he's wrestling with as well. He wrestles with a lot, which is interesting. Well, he's a philosopher. Of course yeah. he does. Okay. I hope... I hope hmm. I'll say it. Troy, I hope you don't mind that I say this. Troy started out in philosophy as this, this shining star, a really bright career with a lot of promise. And he had a tough time earlier on. And he moved from Yale to Oxford and eventually to Reed College. And he found happiness there. But him coming to Bitcoin and being received by Bitcoiners, it's been everything to him. Because it's like another chance at using his talents for good. And yeah. I just love seeing that unfold. Yeah, I, I just don't want to see him getting uh, coerced or bullied into being what he isn't because there are some dicks who will talk to him like a dick and his big thread the other day, he didn't need to fucking do that. He could have just said no. I thought it, it showed integrity, but you're right, he it, didn't need to. Yeah, he didn't do it. He was. He should, he should just told. Sometimes you just got to tell someone to fuck off and that's what he should have done. I mean, I would have, but that's why I've got a lot of enemies. Okay, uh, how do people follow the resistance money movement? Where do you want to send them to? Our website is resistance.money. We stash everything we write there. And we've got a book that we are finishing up the manuscript in December. It goes to the publisher. Then we're getting comments later. And it'll be out in 2023. Amazing. It's a, a complete treatment of Bitcoin from the perspective of philosophy, politics, economics, computer science. A bunch of perspectives all coming together at once. And this is an academic book. It's coming out in academic press. We're not self-publishing. We're trying to do it right to, to really reach audiences that wouldn't just pick up a safety book or wouldn't pick up even like an excellent but self-published book like Alex Gladstein's book. So we, we got high hopes for this. Well, good luck with it. Thank I you. cannot wait to read it. I would sit down like this with you anytime you want and I cannot wait to do it again. I fucking love this. And anyone listening, if, if you've enjoyed this, great. If you haven't, I'm really sorry. I just had to be very selfish in this one and uh, it was wonderful. So... Uh, thank you. Uh, I'm so glad I know you. I'm so glad you're in my life. And let's get some food. Thanks, Peter. It's a pleasure. Okay, thank you for listening to the What Bitcoin Did Therapy Sessions featuring Peter McCormack and Andrew Bailey. <laughs> God, how weird was that? I hope you enjoyed it. It's a bit weird. At the end of it, it was one of those interviews where I was kind of like, for about an hour, I was just like sat there racking my brain and going over everything we discussed. And like, I'm really super conscious every time we make a show that it is an interesting show for the audience. Yeah, me, Danny, Neil, Ben, we work really hard to make sure we're asking the right questions, like preparing right. But this one threw me. I mean, I was totally prepared for Andrew, but he just kind of flipped the script with me. And uh, yeah, I, I applaud him for that. Um, so if you've enjoyed this, I do recommend you go also and check out the shows I made with Troy Cross, the one I made with Crane Warmkey, and we're also going to get Bradley Rettler on the show at some point. And do you know what? I'm going to try and get them all together. I think if we can get Troy, Craig, Andrew, and Bradley all in a room, I think it will be both weird, we'll drink a lot, and we'll get some deep stuff. So hopefully that'll happen. Anyway, big thanks to Andrew. Big thanks to you. I'm off.
Got a football match this weekend. Got to get back to the UK. I've enjoyed myself over here in Switzerland for the Plan B conference. Big shout out to the team put that together. They've done an amazing job. Right, you got any questions about this, anything else, please do reach out to me. It is hello at whatbitcoindid.com.